In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1919 to 1932. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1919. Story number one. I am Hell, written by Haina. The ashes of the dying planet swirled through the air, mingling with the embers of a city, reduced to ruin. The last bastion of resistance was coasted in the remains of a fallen empire, one last holdout against the Inferno. Ten solar years ago, to the day, the once mighty Janelle Empire declared war on a species that had just entered the galactic stage. They numbered but a few minor systems, and although they had some interesting biological features, they were otherwise unremarkable. Several different shades of skin, very little fur covering on their bodies, nothing noteworthy, at least to the burgeoning mass that was the Jernal Empire. It was to be a short, victorious war, designed and planned to boost morale of the Empire, which had been locked in galactic conflict for ages. Aside from that, the species, these humans, had what looked to be a very profitable asteroid field within their solar system, all ripe for the taking. With all the force of a tempest, the Empire descended upon the humans. Their military was small, comparatively. Their technology primitive. As with many races, they fought furiously when cornered. But it was not enough. Their brittle bodies couldn't overpower the larger forms of the Jan'Nal soldiers, of course, as is the way of the universe, things change. Their military was small because they had devoted resources into something else. Something that wasn't ready when the Empire bore down upon them. Their usual technologies were primitive because they had poured so much time and effort into another branch of sciences. Something unheard of in the galactic community. Now the highest ranking member of the Janal military present on this planet... Bernalne stood impassively as a lone figure approached his barricade. The figure was armored, humanoid, and terrifying. On the faceplate, a grinning human skull was carved, mocking the once pride Bernalne's soldiers. Stopping a dozen paces away, the figures removed its helmet, revealing the face of a human, or what looked like one. The AI looked eyes with Bernalne, machines staring into the flesh. This was mankind's true gambit. For some insane reason, they were obsessed with creating AI. True AI, not the pale imitation that assisted aboard starships. Where others had failed and simply stopped trying, the humans preserved. Now, manufactured bodies swarmed across the vast expanse of the Janal Empire, fighting where human flesh could not, all controlled by one of three AI named after the beings in the ancient, bloody pantheons of humanity. The fourth horseman smiled a terrible human smile, bearing the artificial teeth housed within a skull of alloy and plastic. If machines could have a soul, this one was a black abyss. Then it spoke, the damning words breathed at the end of every planet it touched. I am the tattered cloak of innocence. Hanging over the pale, emaciated form of fury. I am violence given form. I am given thought in order to act on humanity's darkest desires. I am the seething blackness of the heart of Earth. I am hell. Bernoulli's rifle roared out, splitting the machine's uncovered head into several different pieces, slicing 
but one of many. Throughout the ruined city, the millions of forms occupied by the AI spoke as one. I am hell! End of story. Story number two. Humanity's Spark, written by Catman. You have taken much from us. When you arrived at Earth, we were a fledgling species, barely able to reach our moon. When we saw your ships in the sky, we were hopeful and excited. We were not alone in the universe, and you might have all the answers we have been seeking. But when those hopes turned to ash alongside New York City, all that remained was a cold lump of fear. You delivered an ultimatum, surrender and slavery, or resistance and death. We resisted, of course, and you took Beijing, Paris, Mumbai, and Los Angeles from us. Our most powerful warheads didn't even scratch the paint on your fleet, and in short order, we were out of options. Humanity surrendered. You took our freedom. Earth temperatures were not suitable for you, so you loaded us as cargo onto your ships and let us watch as you glassed Earth. You took our home. You wanted to drive home that we were not humans. We were slaves. But a shared planet was not what made us human. You brought us to your home planet to work as new exotic servants. But you saw that the loss of our home had not broken us. You showed us the other slave races and gave us power over them in some attempt to make us accept our place or to foster resentment between us. But we were not cruel and abusive as you thought that we would be. We empathized with those fellow unfortunates. We reminded those broken races how life was supposed to be and slave revolts began to crop up across the planet. Your response was swift. You took back the power you had granted us and began sending us to the arena. There, we were forced to fight to the death against one another, against wild animals, and most importantly, against the other slave races. You were no fools, and things began to develop exactly as with our troublesome races. We saw aliens killing our own, and the other races saw humans killing them. We grew to resent the other races, and the revolt stopped. You took our compassion, our mercy. But compassion and mercy were not what made us human. You tried once again to ship us out as slaves, but you quickly discovered that we would band together the moment they had a chance and overpower our jailers, betray our masters, steal transports, whatever it took to escape together. So you took more from us. You put us in slums and gave us insufficient rations. We had to fight amongst ourselves to fight and not starve. Brother against brother. You took our unity, our families. But unity and families were not what made us human. You had taken so much from us. Our freedom, our rights, our home, our compassion, our mercy, our families, our unity, our lives. You left us with nothing but a lump of fear from first contract. Charred and forged into an unbreakable diamond of hatred by the fires of your injustice. That and our humanity. We bowed our heads and you thought that you had tamed humanity. You caught a glimpse of humanity's power. What makes us human is our spark. Call it what you will. Passion, fervor, soul, insanity, 
Humanity is defined by that spark which drives us to pick a goal and pursue it tirelessly, endlessly, through whatever harm and pain may come. Humanity is a spark that drove historians to smuggle our past on board when we left Earth, that drove them to keep our culture alive through oral tradition, so that our home would never fade from memory. Humanity is the spark that drove Valdini Cooper to refuse to kill his opponent in the arena 12 times in a row, despite them being executed immediately afterwards, and despite the fact that he himself was executed after the 12th match. His sacrifice inspired the Chitari revolts of 15437.67. Humanity is the spark that has driven us to excel in every field you have placed us in, as scientists. Bodyguards, captains, engineers, laborers. Humanity is the spark that drove my mother to starve to death so my sister and I could survive. When you saw the spark of humanity, you should have gathered us up and launched us into a star. Humanity is the spark that can burn worlds to ash. Humanity is the spark that drove our scientists to risk igniting our atmosphere to win a war. Humanity is the spark that drove dictators to kill millions in pursuit of their beliefs. Humanity is the spark that drove countries to amass enough nuclear warheads to glass our planet ten times over. The things you took from us, compassion, mercy, unity, family, those are not humanity. Those are the yokes we put on our humanity to harness that spark for a better future. But you stripped them all away. And so humanity became the spark that drove our energies to find and create backdoors in your fleet's power core control units. Humanity became the spark that drove our scientists to invent selective nerve gas in a kitchen laboratory. Humanity became the spark that just turned your home planet into a toxic wasteland and your fleet into an enormous fireworks show. Humanity became the spark that drove us to pander and submit to suffer your indignities in order to get close enough to stab you in the back. Now, if we were the humans you picked up from Earth all those years ago, I would be declaring war on you. But you took our unity, so that hardly feels appropriate. I would tell you the rules of combat to spare your civilians, but you took our compassion, so they will find no relief. I would tell you to surrender, but you took our mercy, so it would do you no good. I will tell you one thing. It is time for humanity to start taking back. Pray that we find what you took before humanity burns this entire galaxy to ash. Excerpt from Richard Staver's Declaration of Human Independence. End of story. 1920. The Tropper, written by Mean Gator. This is it. The battle was about to begin. If we lose, this would be the battle to end all battles. If we won, the onslaught will be continued without ending on the horizon. Parseval wasn't genocidal. A slave of civilization needs its slaves. If we lost, we would survive as a species. But what makes us human would not. We would be slaves with crushed spirits, bred to serve our conquerors. We fought each other like demons. But the slavers were more numerous, though slightly less advanced. We fought them, as no one had fought before. We earned their respect, but they couldn't allow us to win the fight. It would mean the end of their way of life. 
So we fought, system after system, planet after planet, moon after moon, asteroid after asteroid. It was a numbers game, and we just haven't them. Slowly, and on and on they pushed. They paid an unholy price for every inch of space taken away from us. But they kept pushing. Their losses were immense, but they had numbers. We didn't. They kept pushing until there was no other place to go for us. Their invasion fleets were devastated, but so were ours. Their jumping technology was inferior. They couldn't jump deep in our sun's gravity well. They jumped at Pluto's orbit. Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars were on the other side of the sun, and that was both good and bad for both. They have superior numbers, but not enough to attack us from both ways of the ecliptic. So they jumped to a distance of Neptune's orbit vertical to the ecliptic plane. On the side of Earth, we couldn't use Saturn's, Jupiter's and Mars's fortifications, but we hadn't to worry for them either. They couldn't jump deep in the sun's gravity well, but we could. If needed, we could support defending them, but this would divide us and the numbers were bad. Really bad. In the end, the R. Savar's fleet decided to attack Earth directly. If they won, the rest of the intersolar colonies would have no other option than to surrender or go in a suicidal boom. But humans, in general, don't do that. Dumb Spiro Sparrow, as long as I breathe, I hope. Do you know the story of Pandora's box? Actually, it wasn't a box. It was a pythos, a large jar. Pandora opened the jar and all the evils spelled out into the world, frightened. She closed the jar, but it was too late. Only Alpus, Hope, remained in the box. Have you ever questioned yourself about the real meaning behind the story? I had, and to me the answer was very simple, very straightforward. If Hope is something good, then why was it placed in the jar with all the evils? For me, Hope is the evilest of all evils. The Arsavar won, then what makes us human would be forever crushed. We would survive as a species. But we wouldn't survive as humans. Our fleet yards would work day and night to build more ships, not only to make our last stand, but to continue to fight. Harsavar weren't fools. Their lines were stretched to their limits, but their war machine wasn't set on idle. Even if they failed, they would have numbers to restart the fight. We devastated their initial evasion fleet, but at the end all we had were one carrier with 200 fighters, one hastily repaired battleship kept by duct tape and the wool of its crew, three battle cruisers, five cruisers, and thirty frigates and corvettes. In the end, we revived something from our history books, a gunship. Having the triple size of an attack bomber carried with the speed of a fighter and the punch of a frigate. One, one, one. It hasn't a chance in hell against an enemy ship larger than a frigate, but they were relatively cheap to reduce and they could stand the punch of enemy fighters and bombers. Truth is, we need more than 30 of them to take down an enemy super battleship. But their role was not to take down capital ships, was to devastate the enemy fighters and to weaken the larger enemy warships. We built thousands of them. They gutted the enemy and fought the good fight, but in the end only 150 of them were left. The Arsavar have three super battleships, ten battleships, fifteen battle cruisers, no heavy or light cruisers were left, and about two hundred frigates and corvettes. Their carrier have not survived the invasion, but all of their ships were equal or larger to a battle cruiser, hosted its share of fighter squadrons, or what was left of them. 
Their troop carriers waited in the conquered systems three jumps away. Human ships could jump further than the enemy and have the ability for intra-system jumps. So, it was not safe for troop carriers to be near the battle. Should the unthinkable for the enemy happen? As I said, the Arsava were no fools. It was bad. It was very bad. Without the gunships, we would stand no chance in hell, and even with them, our chances were just slightly larger than infinitesimal. We, the crews of the gunships, bombers and fighters, knew that we were a cannon father. We would fight and give our lives just to harass and weaken the enemy, just to buy time for our warships. Gunships would gone first to protect bombers and fighters from what was left of the enemy fighter squadrons, and then split. Gunships to attack their super battleships and battleships, and bombers to attack their lighter warships. It was a good tactic as it could be. Their frigates and corvettes couldn't stand the attack of the gunships and the bombers, and used concurrently as cannon fodder to protect their heavy ships or what was left of our heavy ships. We'd go first, take as many of the ships with us as we could, and die in the hope that we thinned the enemy fleet enough so that our heavier warships have a chance to win the day. A slight chance, it was better than we could hope. A gunship have a crew of five. We knew that we would die, but there was no chance in hell to go quietly into the night. We would draw blood until we couldn't. Guys, are you ready? Gunner one, go. Gunner two, go. Gunner three, go. Engineering, go. We waited the order, each one lost in his thoughts. We have said our goodbyes. We've kissed our wives and children, and we went to fight. In ancient Sparta, the mother or the wife of the warrior gave him a shield, saying, With it or on it. We knew that we wouldn't survive the fight, and even if humans won, there would be nothing of us left to bring to our homes by our comrades. We would die as humans in order for the rest to survive as humans. I got the order in my comm line. This is it, guys. It's really an honor. Same here, Cap, said Johnson. Gunner number one. Lewis, it was indeed a beautiful friendship. Masterson, Gunner two, and avid Casablanca fan. We would always have Paris at Peppers and Anastasia, Gunner three and also an avid Casablanca fan. Play it again, Sam, I ordered, smiling our engineer. He pumped up the volume, and on we charged. You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too. You'll fire your musket, but I'll run you through. So when you're waiting for the next attack, you better stand, there's no turning back. The bugle sounds as the charge begins, but as the battlefield, no one wins. The smell of acrid smoke and horses breathe as you plunge into certain death. The horse he sweats with fear, we break to run, the mighty roar of the Russian guns, and as we race towards human war, the screams of pain as my comrades fall. We hurdle bodies that lay on the ground, and as the Russians fire another round, we get so near, get so far away, we won't live to fight another day. We get so close near enough to fight, when the Russians get me in his sights, he pulls the trigger and I feel the blow. A burst of rounds takes my house below. And as I lay there gazing at the sky, my body's numb and my throat is dry. And as I lay forgotten and alone, without a tear I draw my parting groan. End of story. Story number two. We did it ourselves. Written by British Tea Company. Me, our most impressed, Emperor Sephriel commented as he walked through the skeleton of a proud city undergoing its rebirth. 
There are few things that I admire more than determination, or the sheer will to battle on against impossible efforts. Your efforts of defeating those loathsome colonizers, even with the odds stacked against your people, shows little but your true underlying strength. I am glad you approve, General Edward said as you casually leaned against the wall. Twenty years, twenty goddamn years that we fought against the alien freaks. Glad that we can call Earth our world again. It does me proud knowing that our boys were willing to lay everything on the line to make sure we got our dues. Your men lack nothing when it comes to character. To say that they could measure themselves against our own warriors would be an excellent statement to make in regards to their ability. What bothers us, however, was your choice in this conflict. This war has cost many lives. In the beginning, we had told you about the depths of our power. We had demonstrated towards you the limitless power and the eternal army, and the infinite ability of our personal self. Why then, did you refuse the aid that we could easily save countless lives and won you your war? When you first appeared out of the portal, some of us here thought that you were a second coming of Christ. Well, the second coming of Christ, who is perhaps a bit more metal than the first time around. Normally, when someone tells me that there is some immortal space wizard, I tend not to take them very seriously. Of course, given the circumstances which we met, I understood you meant every word that you said. I get that you're some space wizard who's a god-emperor of some empire in another universe where humanity is the top of the food chain. Chances are, I'm willing to bet that you can have just lifted a finger and erased most of the aliens from existence. It is well within our capacity. What is not within our understanding is your stubborn refusal to our power. Was it honor that motivated your actions? You had spoken about it during your battles, as respectable of a trait as it happens to be. There are times when ideas begin to cost lives. It costed lives, I know that. If I had taken your help, I could have had space wizards and space dragons rampaging all around the planet until you finished off the last of the aliens. The thing is, once I take help from you, what then? We won the battle against the aliens by ourselves. Not because we asked ourselves from a possible future to stomp them into the earth. We won our war on our own sweat and our own blood. I think when I tell my children in the future about how we took on their fancy death rays with our slug shooters, we'll have more to live up to and aspire to than if I told them how we got a few space wizards to magic them out of existence. End of story. 1921. Complacency. Written by Dino Maiar. Grangval walked into the Emperor Thunken's throne room trying to stop shaking at the thought of being executed after presenting his report. He looked at the members of the Emperor's entourage and saw them averting their eyes, knowing his fate. As he approached the Emperor, he knelt and waited for permission to speak. Speak, announced the Emperor impatiently, as he has been waiting for this report for several cycles. Dai have completed the investigation into the failure of the sole conquest, Your Eminence. Kragvar said, without looking up to face the Emperor. It is about time now. Who do I blame, and are they still alive so that I can execute them? The Emperor said angrily. There is not a single individual to blame, Your Eminence, but it was multiple failures that all seemed to be due to complacency. 
Kragwa meekly said, hoping to get the chance to explain before being killed in a fit of rage the Emperor is known for. Explain, yelled the Emperor, suppressing his rage at the first failure of his species in thousands of generations. As you know, the subjugation of the humans went as planned, and without any surprises. Our ships entered orbit and destroyed all major cities and military complexes, resulting in the destruction of half of the population as per the standard invasion plans. This is where the first point of failure occurred. Point of failure, the Emperor erupted. It was a complete success. The humans capitulated when they realized that they were no match for our superior might. They fell in line and were used to for 20 of their solar rotations without any significant resistance. How was there a failure? We destroyed their military complexes, but we failed to destroy all of their weapons. Kragvar said, knowing that correcting the Emperor usually resulted in immediate death. The report said that we destroyed all the weapons they used against us. Are you saying that General Mragran lied on his reports? No, Your Eminence. We did destroy all weapons that were used against us. My finding is that they had so many weapons that after the first ones failed, they did not try any others. Their weapons were useless against us, so what if they did not destroy all of them? The Emperor said as he leaned back and waved his hand as if to brush aside the notion. They did not use them against us directly, but found other uses for them. How do we not detect that what they were doing? The emperor asked, becoming curious as to how such a primitive species could get the upper hand on the great empire. That leads us to the second point of failure. As you said, the humans capitulated quickly, and we were able to send down an exosuit, plasma drillers, and ore haulers to get the deep mining started right away. There was only one major counterattack in that verse solar rotation, and it was quelled quickly, and as required, we executed 100,000 humans as punishment. They seemed to learn the lesson, and there was no more resistance. For five solar rotations, everything was proceeding as normal. Yes, yes, I know all this. Get to the point of failure the Empress said exasperatingly. As with all of our conquests, there are always pirates and contraband peddlers that will evade our detection and expropriate some local goods to sell, usually just rare items wanted to fill some rich connoisseur's collection or some kind of local food or drink that is part of the latest fad. There are these fruits that cause a burning sensation and can cause death in some cases, but the young generation are willing to chance it, to try and one-up one another, to see who can eat the hardest. Kragmar looked up at the Emperor and saw that he had placed his hand on his mace. He realized he'd better get to the point quickly, else his death would be near. Because it is common, most of these incursions are ignored. But in one instance, it was noticed when the ship left the plasma driller. That is not unheard of, but rare. So, it was reported. A new one was requisitioned, and everything continued on. It was twenty cycles later, before the ship was apprehended, and they found the transponder of the plasma driller embedded into the contraband they had aboard. Their failure was that they did not notify General Marakran, and they only found the transponder, not a complete driller, so he did not know why humans had it. Why did we not detect the humans using the driller, and where were they storing the material they removed if they were using it? The Emperor asked. Without a transponder, the drillers are hard to track and the humans tunneled deep under a large deposit of uranium, which interfered with our scanning signals. This showed a third point of failure. Once a vein of ore is mined out, we never scan that vein again. The humans were able to put the material they were removing into the old veins, so we never found it. 
Is it too hot for humans to survive in that depth without an exosuit? And they only had one, so what good did their digging do? That's the fourth point of failure. We take some of our basic technology for granted, but the humans did not have access to it before, and it allowed them to advance their abilities. Something as simple as a cooling system we use is far advanced from their current capabilities. Same for the magnetics that we use in the plasma control systems. With these advancements, they were able to create a tolerable environment to work in. Even so, what did they do with the tunnels? Not just tunnels, but larger caverns that they set up manufacturing equipment and even a foundry. That brings up the fifth point of failure. We carefully watched the humans' construction projects and any equipment that was created to make sure where they went and what they were being used for. But we failed to pay attention to the parts they were making. The humans were having parts made all across the planet, and they were being smuggled into the tunnels to create equipment. I do not have the exact time frame, but I estimate that it took five solar rotations to create all the manufacturing processes needed. What were they manufacturing? First, they created more plasma diggers, although their design was primitive and not as durable as our design. They were able to create them quickly. But the diggers, they created deep tunnels all around the world to move supplies, deeper than our scans could pick up. Using our designs for the exosuits, they also created an army armed with the railguns that they were able to create with our magnetic and cooling technologies. They mined uranium and created aluminium projectiles with uranium tips and cores. I've estimated that they built these weapons for ten solar rotations. Even with that kind of weapon, if they attacked, they would be destroyed from orbit, so it would do them no good. Yes, which leads us to the sixth failure. Kragvar said, extremely surprised that he had not been killed yet. Despite our protocols, our orbital patterns were predictable over long periods, and the humans figured them out. They dug deep pits below large rock formations at strategic locations, lowered the nuclear weapons we failed to destroy into the bottom of them, then filled them with water and set off the weapons, sending our rock formations directly into our ship. We would have detected the detonations, and our shields would easily stop them. How did they fail? The Emperor asks, growing weary of excuses. For twenty solar rotations, there was no activity, and the captains grew complacent, so there was no officers on the bridge of four of the ships during the attack, which would be the seventh failure. The fifth ship had only one officer on the bridge, but he was not close enough to familiar enough with the shield's controls to activate them in time exposing the eighth failure in making sure all officers are fully trained on all equipment. How was he an officer without being trained? He was promoted because of nepotism. His father was the captain. The only ship to survive was the General MacGrand's flagship. He had a full complement on his bridge, and they got their shields up in the time and moved partially out of the way. But they still incurred damage from the hit that restricted their movement. Mike protocols, he should have ordered a full evacuation and started glassing the planet yelled the Emperor. He did, Your Highness. This gives us the ninth failure. The humans used the army they created to take over several of the shuttles they managed to fly them to the General's ship. Our systems are so easy to use, the humans did not need any experience to fly them, and we did not have any safeties to stop them from using them. Let me guess, the next failure was that we did not detect them in the shuttles, the Emperor said, being pretty sure he knew what was coming next. Correct. That was the tenth failure. They managed to get on board and expose the eleventh failure. Usually, there are enough guards in the landing bay to handle any kind of incursion like this, but they had gotten lax, and only a minimal number of guards were on duty, and they were quickly overwhelmed. 
Then the humans did something we had never anticipated, exposing the twelfth failure. They used the plasma cutters to weld the door shut. When the rest of the guards arrived, they could not get in until they could get the doors cut. But it was too late. The humans had used the plasma cutters to breach the engine cores and the shuttles and detonated them, destroying the ship and the general with it. Suicide mission! At least they died as warriors instead of cowards. That I can respect. As for the rest, we will send a new fleet and destroy the humans. As the Emperor was giving orders to ensure the same mistakes were not made, Kragvar received a new message on his datapad. Your Eminence, this is one more failure to report. Who could be responsible for another failure if everyone is dead? The Emperor asked in a resigned tone. The failure would be mine. It appears I led the humans here, to our homeworld. As soon as he finished that statement, a blinding flash was the last thing they saw when one of their freighters, fully loaded and with mind material and ore, slammed into the planet at maximum speed. End of story. 1922 Gods Among Men Written by Hell's Kitchen Sink I confess, Emissary, I do not quite understand. Oh, the chosen diplomat of humanity's gods smiled, leaning back. Please, please, uh, share your concerns with your grossness. Well, your form, it confuses me. Really? The god drained one of the small bulbs of fluid, leaning back. The heavenly vessel hovered in the aether, at the edge of the system's world. A small parcel sat in his lap. The gods of the system had offered it a gift, a symbol of their intentions. Tell my fellow Kachak, the endless devourer, I swept my hand towards the corner of the room. The room ended abruptly, cut off by a line of absolute darkness. On the world of Tenpick, the psychosynthetic dwellers are ever-ambling creatures. Their high metabolism requires constant exposure to sunlight, and so they wander the great central band continent in a never-ending trek to avoid nightfall. Characterized by the sharp definition, thanks to the thin atmosphere of the world, those who slow fall behind, closer to the dividing line between life and death. He is what the Tenpec fear the most. Hmm, very impressive, said the god, scratching behind one of his ears, trading his fingers through his brilliant red hair. It was long, shaggy, and hung across his bright blue eyes. I mean, I assume he is, behind the darkness. Let's the imagination do all those spooky things, doesn't it? Quite, I said, nonplussed. Or Ratakafar. Matriarch of Phages. Before they achieved spaceflight, the Par were preyed upon by the Great Tar. The quick and agile Car and the vicious ambush predators, the Far. She who has the body of the Tar and the limbs of the Car, and the head and tail of the Far. She represents the most primal terror of being devoured, as was the fate of nine Par out of ten for most of their recorded history. Even now her temples contain the sacred predators, and miscreants are fed to them, or occasionally the unlucky, when the miscreants are unavailable. A reminder that they were prey, and always shall remain prey. Oh yes, the god nodded. Excellent teeth. Reminds me of Jormungandr. Very impressive. Very frightening. I bet Par absolutely loathed no, of course, all greater tune, the frequency which kills, who represents the shattered tone for the crystalline. Look, I rather feel as though you're, you're trying to tell me something here. What? It, it, exactly. Do you represent... Well, uh, said the emissary, 
Quite a few things. Ah, let me see. Uh, there's a phenomenon on Midgard. Sorry, the human's world. You see, the atmosphere is somewhat unstable. Hot and cold pressure systems meet. But different levels of humidity can cause water to precipitate. The same situation can cause the electric charge of the atmosphere to become unbalanced. Sufficient imbalances leads to localized transfer of charge, creating a temporary stream of plasma. That's called lightning. The momentarily high-energy environment creates a vacuum which implodes. The humans call it thunder. Fearsome, I said, nodding slowly, understandingly. I find divine attribute. Does it kill many people? Uh, well, not really, the god said, chuckling. <laughs> Does a little property damage, uh, starts the occasional fire, but the thunder's largely harmless. Scary, but harmless. The lightning, well, there's a human saying that mentions how unlikely it is to hurt them. Ah, my brow analog felt. Again, I fear that we are experiencing something of a translation issue. Look, I think I understand where all of this is coming from. My brother talked me through it. He wanted to come along, but something demanded his attention. Now, uh, your government, a uh, theocracy, you have cowed the civilians that gave birth to you, made them into your slaves, all of that. You use them as food source, uh, feeding on their beliefs, demanding things of them, so on and so forth, running quite an impressive little stellar empire. Love the battle fleet, by the way. My question is not meant to offend... Some gods are simply, uh, loathe to cooperate. They believe that they can keep their civilization to themselves, act as soul tyrants, rather than benefiting from a mutualistic relationship. You, said Rata Kafar, her voice muffled by many sharp teeth, do not appear to have such an antagonistic attitude. The god's lips pulled back, revealing sharp enamel fangs, shiny, a bright white. I was given to understanding it was meant as a friendly gesture in human society. A smile. I tried not to let it get to me. Ratukafar, claws extended, and her own fight and flight reflexes clearly tried to overpower her sapiens to set her into killing frenzy against an unknown predator that was indicating it wanted to eat her. Ratukafar, I said warningly. Yes, said the emissary. Broadly correct. We have no interest in going it alone. He tilted his head towards the other human god. This one was similar in appearance. Though his hair was cut short, his garments far smaller, covering less of his epidermis, but still white-haired and red-headed. Set, the god of violence and foreigners. He represented a subdivision of the natural order amongst the humans who worshipped his pantheon. Of, of course, he was also the guardian against the darkness. He fought a bep each night in order to protect Ra. Part of his penance for murdering his brother Osiris. Set nodded silently, his eyes still fixed on Kachak. He hadn't looked away from the god of darkness for the entire tete-a-tete. -tete. I see, I said, trying to follow the statement. Look, my point is this. Gods represent the attitude of the universe towards the sapient race. The way they view the universe is the way their gods evolved. In an entropic universe like ours, full of predators, resource shortages, and dangerous natural phenomenon, we represent the things that they fear most. I can't help but notice that you both look quite a lot like humans. Well, uh, they, they can be very scary, said Thor, cheerfully. But somewhat relatable. You understand the difficulty, don't you? If you look like humans, well... They have something of a tendency to treat you like humans. Do not fear you. Do not respect you as they should. You really should be more, uh, well, 
Inhuman. Terrify them. Ah, I know what you mean. You see, we have plenty of such gods. Well, had. There was this one time, well, precious object that had stolen from me. My brother and I learned that it had been stolen by such a god, who intended to marry one of the most beautiful goddesses. She refused to cooperate with our scheme, so I was forced to dress up as her. We went to the hall of the other god, with me in all the bridal veil and gown, and when we found the precious object, after fooling the other god, I proceeded to beat him to death, and savage the other giants within the hall for their obstinance. A shocked silence weighed heavily in the air as I stared blankly at the emissary. The admission of the side. Ah, I'm sorry, the, the joke must not translate well. My kind find great humor in big, strong men dressed in delicate, feminine clothing. You killed another god, said the great Tune, beautifully tonal voice fluctuating slightly. Oh, stone dead, I mean, it was hardly the first time. I've killed a fair number of gods in my time. None for quite a long time, of course, sir. We're all far more civilized now. Anyway, what you're referring to are what the humans might call monsters, and certainly I have plenty of experience with them. I should hope so, I said, my voice strained. At any rate, I'm sorry. Please allow me to take a moment. I am receiving an urgent message. I stood up, sweeping to the communications suite. Out of sight, Zakak, the god of bloody invaders, a god who had come about when a foreign civilization had risen on our home world, putting thousands of my worshippers to the sword. He had been my people's god, of course, but he'd never tired of slaughtering them, making him an ideal commander. Zakak, my good friend, it's good to get away from these gods. They're all difficult. The fleet is out of position, growled Zakak through the mouthful of blood. They are scattered, going in various directions. They are claiming to act on your orders, Fitzik. What is happening? I cannot countermand an order from you. I stared blankly and struck the frequency modulator, contacting the mortal leader of the invasion fleet. He appeared on the screen, his forehead on the ground, in a position of obeisance. Mortal! I thundered, letting my voice fill the blood and... Oh yes, I liked this new term, thunder, that belonged to the god of sun that burns letting my radiance pour through the communication to burn his skin. His screaming filling the air. Return to your position immediately. Instruct the other ships of the fleet to do the same. But my lord, you ordered us to break communications. Only your suite can properly contact us all and provide the counter-orders. You contacted me with the orders personally, not an hour ago. I cursed internally. It would take hours. I stepped away from the suite after blasting the cowering mortal into a pillar of salt. Emissary, I'm sorry, something has come up. I must cut this meeting short. Ah, I understand. Please, allow me to offer my gift first. He set down a parcel and opened it slowly, tilting it towards me. I frowned. A warhammer? Oh, quite so. He took the warhammer out of the package. It seems rather short. Aren't such weapons meant to be made two-handed? My brother commissioned it for me. In trying to cheat the makers, he wound up introducing a floor into it, giving it a shorter handle than it was meant to have. The god's eyes twinkle. He was always a troublesome one. Still, it's a very fine weapon. If the wielder throws it, it'll always return to the hand. I wanted you to have it before I left. Interesting, I said, impressed despite myself. A primitive weapon, not much good in an arrow, stars, and vast fleets, but still the of obvious puissance. 
How does it work? The god's teeth shined again, sharp and fearsome, as he slipped his wrist through the strap, letting the heavy metal head fall until it was hung by the strap from his wrist. He casually spun it up twice around his wrist as the partner leaned forward in his chair, eyes fixed on Kachak. Let me demonstrate, said Thor. End of story. 1923. Story number one. The New Colleague. Written by Wanny91. Marketing Manager's Log. Sill Corporation. Year 2654. 01.05. My friend from the HR department informed me today that I will get a new employee starting next month. It seems that our management has finally heard my plea for more people in order to deal with the heavy influx of work recently. According to the personnel file, new employee comes from a newly discovered species called humanity and goes by the name Philip. I'm looking forward to meet him. 01.06 Note to all employees, due to a small incident during the introduction of our newest team member, it is now forbidden for everyone to greet any human with their traditional ritual called handshake. I'm sure that our new colleague didn't intend to break anyone's limb. 02.06 Philip received a pay rise of 20% today because he called our CEO slim and good-looking, even though this isn't true at all. Apparently, it helps your career if you flatter your boss. 05.06 In order to not put too much pressure on Philip, I send him home on the remainder of the week. My only hope is that 13 days are enough time for him to recover from the stress. 18.06 it appears the humans are very fast learners since Philip has already completed his two-week-long training course in just three days. Apparently, humans have, in comparison to other species, a very developed cerebral cortex and thus are capable of adjusting themselves quickly to new situations. Since Philip has already finished his training course and we don't have any work for him planned yet, I send him home again. 25.06 Poor Philip. His first real day at work and he had attended several long and tedious meetings. Still, I have to say that he managed the meetings very well, which, uh, according to him, was thanks to the human technique called napping. It is nice to see Philip working so hard for the benefit of our company. 02.07 Today, Philip accidentally destroyed his office chair after trying to sit on it for the first time. As I was informed, humans come from a planet with high gravity and thus are heavier than they look like. Because Philip can't do any work without his chair, I send him home again. 06.07 Philip accidentally destroyed his computer. It seems like that is his species is prone to short outbursts of anger if their equipment does not work correctly. Since he can't work without a computer, I have to send him home. 12.07 A bulletproof window was installed after Philip threw out his new computer when it didn't work. As a punishment, I forbid him to work for four days. 13.07 it is forbidden for Philip to clap with his hands sarcastically if the computer works as intended. Two colleagues had to go to the hospital since they couldn't hear anything anymore. 15.07 What a busy day. We got swarmed with work, but Philip managed well. He even managed to finish his share of the work before lunch. As a thanks for that, I promised to buy him lunch today. 15.07 Afternoon Note to myself, never buy lunch for Philip again. Despite their look, humans can eat for ten of my kind. My wallet can't afford that much again. 18.07 Philip saved our entire company today. 
All of our computers suddenly didn't work anymore, but he saved the day by doing something called turning it off and on again. Note to self, suggest Philip for a promotion. 21.07 I'm very fond of Philip, despite the fact that he already does the biggest share of the work in our department. He still offered to help out his colleague whose son had an accident. According to Philip, writing two more business letters wasn't too much to do, even though it takes usually six hours to write one of them. Could it be that humans have a higher metabolic rate than other species and thus have a faster perception of time? Note to self, find out humans' metabolic rate and know if this would affect the economy. 25.07 As a thank you for helping him out, Zok No Lin offered to buy Philip lunch. Unfortunately, I was too late to warn him and he spent over half of his fortune to buy food for Philip. It seems like the pride of his species prevented Zog No Lin from taking back his offer after finding out how much Philip can eat. 31.07 At the annual meeting of the department managers, it was revealed that the productivity of my department has gone up 300% since Philip had joined my team. 12.07 Because Philip is capable to do most of our department's work alone, three other members of my team were let go. Because of Philip's efficiency, our CEO is considering hiring more humans. 17.08 I finally learned what the word napping means. I rebuked Philip for sleeping during the meeting and submitted an official complaint to the HR department. 18.08 Our CEO has personally torn off my written complaint about Philip. It seems like he helps your career if you are nice to the CEO and go regularly out to drink with him. 24.08 I found out that humans have indeed a faster metabolic rate than other species, and thus are able to work so much faster than anyone else. I have also found out that humans compare us to the native animal on their home planet called a... Sloth. 25.08 Well, I tried to warn the government that our entire economy was at stake due to the fast metabolism of humans. Philip introduced a hot liquid called coffee, which increased the company's overall productivity by 200%. It seems like my worries were unjustified since all the employees are now capable of working as fast as Philip. 31.09 Due to the liquid coffee, productivity in all departments has gone up 300%. 10.10 Automatic log update due to mentioning of company name and press. Name of company was mentioned two times in the following context. The market was shocked today by the announcement that the company, Sill Corporation, had to permanently close their doors after all their employees had been delivered to the hospital earlier this week. According to the doctors, most staff members suffered complete exhaustion due to ergogenic drug which was found inside a brown liquid. Due to the virulence of said liquid, not only got the CEO of the company arrested, but the whole company had to be put into quarantine. At first, investors of the company were worried about the sudden closure of the company. But the announcement of a newly founded company by one of the Sill Corporation's foreign employees named Philip managed to calm the markets down again. End of story. Story number two. Two more shall take his place. Written by British Tea Company. The sergeant stood up from the trenches and walked forward, moving past the charred skeletons and ruined war machines. He continued to move forward towards the titanic creature in the not-so-far distance away from him. The heat became almost unbearable in the area around it. From the gigantic crater it rested in to the countless wreckage and destruction around it. It was also almost impossible to imagine such a thing could exist. The size 
of a mountain, with legs taller than houses, the sergeant's eyes fell upon Farrakh. The iron dragon glanced down. Perhaps it was slightly amused that there was still one remaining human left, which was why it howled off the incinerating this one. Performing a mock salute with the claws at the sergeant, the dragon stood to its full height. Its two eyes, malevolent and haughty, locked on to the last man standing. Come to join your friends. That's the only thing left for me to do. The big dragon gave a snort in response as it mirthlessly looked down. You survived. You survived me laying waste to this area. Impressive. Indeed, the sergeant had survived the initial attack. Like the star of morning, Farrakh had came crushing down from the skies and leveled an entire city. Most of the division died in the initial attack. Those who didn't either met their end at Farrakh's molten iron breath had either fled or now had been killed in the panic that ensued. The sergeant said nothing as he reached for his sword. His knuckles whitened. He remembered Wilhelm's screams when the fissures opened up and the man fell in. He recalled old man Hemming's eyes, the way he closed his eyes so peacefully when the tides of molten iron took him. He recalled his best friend Carl, holding the siege engines to the last of his debris, and molten iron came for him. Instead of making a futile gesture, I have a better idea, Farrakh said as he contemplated deeply at the sight of the insect drawing a half-broken sword. You survived the initial attack, and you chose not to flee. A test of both ability and will. How about uh, you join me? Join me, recruit followers to my cause, and, uh, how do you humans say it? You'll get a piece of the pie, yes. Good deal, yes. The sergeant said nothing as he examined his broken weapon. He adopted a fighter's stance as much as his weary body allowed and looked up. So before I crush you, what reasoning do you have to refuse? I can lie down and have a nap here, maybe a few good decades or so, and you'll have passed away from old age before even as much as a splitting a single scale. Join me like I ask, and you will live to reap the rewards. I didn't survive this long just to cast my lot in with the devil, the sergeant said. I didn't watch all my friends die just to be your pawn now. We didn't all bleed and die for me to just be a turncoat. I suppose a sense of honor and loyalty are commendable, if not misplaced. You are mere ants coming from your mounds to try and defend yourself from a torrential storm. The dragon lifted his foot and caused the skies to go dark as the sergeant looked up and closed his eyes, his conscience at peace. When I fall, hundred more will come to take my place. Mounds today, Farrakh, swept away in a storm of terror. But tomorrow... Mountains will rise to defy you. You cannot hope to win. End of story. 1924. They did what? Pets, written by Intellectual Golf. Talia inhaled the captivating aroma of a chamomile tea and sighed deeply. There was nothing quite like chamomile tea for soothing your nerves. She couldn't stop a small smile at the thought of how contrary it was to add caffeine to chamomile. But without it, she would have fallen asleep hours before. And so she enjoyed a small sip of her blasphemous beverage. Traditionalists be damned. The ability to add caffeine to literally anything had made coffee a product that rose and fell in popularity like other cultural fads. 
An odd, high-pitched whistle sound announced the presence of something at the other end of her desk, and she opened her eyes just enough to squint through her lashes at the patron. She quickly closed her eyes again at the slight wave of queasiness coursed through her at the sight of the Atlantaku. Talia considered that perhaps sight was not the correct term. The Atlantaku were a bizarre species that were hard to describe or make comparisons of simply because they refused to be seen, mostly. Atlantaku stood at average human heightish, took up about a human-sized area of space, and looked like a living watercolor painting from their immediate surroundings. Talia knew a fair amount about the cuttlefish, and their color-changing abilities were the closest comparisons she could make. But even that image failed to convey the non-appearance of the Atlantaku. Excuse me... I believe this file might have been mislabeled. The noise that Talia heard filtered through her translator, sounded like three wildly pitching train whistles shifting rapidly between the higher ranges of human hearing. The Atlantico spoke exclusively in whistling language. Although there were reports that said that actually had two languages, one private language only spoken amongst their own kind, and the public whistling language they used around other species. Talia wasn't sure how. Aside from outright spying, someone would have figured that out. But it wasn't extremely important. What a pleasant surprise. I'm sorry. I think I misunderstood. It is pleasant that a file is mislabeled. Talia blushed slightly in embarrassment as she realized she had spoken aloud. She tried her best to look at the Atlantico's face area as she spoke. Although the queasy feeling the shifting colors evoked continued... My apologies. I meant that it was one of the more pleasant introductions I've had this week. Others are unpleasant. Oh, I'm not complaining. They mean well, but some patrons come across a little strong when providing a criticism of the filing system. It is not your job to receive feedback, such as a correction that brought me to here. Talia noticed that the translator didn't make the usual neutral tone it adopted when translating angry or negatively charged words. She assumed this meant that the Atlantico was simply stating a fact, which from a human could have come across as inconsiderate or socially awkward at best. Of course, speaking of, why do you believe that the file is mislabeled? The Atlantico paused for a second, and Talia couldn't be sure if this was still trying to figure out the meaning of a slip-up, or if it was doing something else entirely. Finally, one of its watercolor camouflaged appendages waved upwards slightly in a throwing-away gesture. The corner of Talia's mouth twitched upwards slightly in amusement, and yet another nearly ununiversal gesture. This file is stored under the category Human Pets, and specifically Adorable. This must be some kind of error. Talia raised her hand and made a come-hither gesture for her pointer finger. The video screen popped up on a desk and began playing a video content associated with the file. On the screen, a smiling woman in her mid to late thirties with a vibrant red hair was speaking. Hey pet friends, I'm so excited today because today I have a new pet to show you all. The camera turns around and is pointing at a plastic container approximately three feet wide and two feet tall with no lid. Inside the container is a layer of sand, some small plants of indeterminate species, and a ball of fluffy blue fur about a foot wide and with two black orbs on either side of the ball facing the camera. Talia couldn't help but gasp slightly 
and it would have been fair to guess whether the response was in shock or adoration. That's right, my friends, it's a Greekle. Now, for those of you who don't know, these little guys are pretty tough to keep as pets. But if you're an expert like me, there is no problem. And for all your trolls out there, there is nothing illegal about owning a Greekle. You jokes just keep trying to demonetize me and claim that I'm not a responsible pet mom. I am still here, so obviously you are wrong. The camera began moving towards the Greekle, and the woman continued narrating. But the audio was suddenly cut off as the blue furball launched itself at the camera and became 90% teeth. Talia paused the video as she realized she hadn't checked the tags for the video before hitting play, and she chided herself mentally for forgetting once again. She brought up the tags and what she read made her inhale and clench her teeth, creating a hissing sound. The Atlantiku had made a sing-songy whistling sound, and the translator informed her that it was laughing. Talia raised an eyebrow at while maintaining a neutral expression. The Atlantico repeated the sing-song whistle and then after a beat explained, I apologize. I found it amusing that your species also has a display associated with false pain. What you might call empathy. My species hisses in response to disaster or potential disaster as well. We also express disbelief, confusion or consternation with a common physical expression. Although I think you must take my word on that given how we appear to others. Talia chuckled in response and then eyed the video screen askance. The tags on the video were pet, adorable, greekle, blood gore, dismemberment, idiot, etc. She wasn't especially surprised as she had seen more than a few videos and photos of the aftermath of human interaction with greekles. The issue was that the cute little furball sitting in the plastic container was essentially made up of three things, fur, teeth, and an insatiable appetite. Greekles had developed on a volcanic planet in the outskirts of their solar system, warm enough thanks to the core and volcanic activity to support life. But so far away from the sun, most of the planet's surface was frozen tundra. The Greekle were the top predator on their planet indiscriminately consuming any organic material they came across, living or not. The physiology reflected this omnivorous predatory nature as their mouths were filled with hundreds of plate-like teeth that were smooth on the exterior side and serrated on the interior. Whatever went into a Greekle's mouth was not leaving, barring the destruction of the Greekle or the complete separation of the portion lost to the maw of the Greekle. Talia had no intention of watching the rest of the video since she did not enjoy the sight of blood or derive any joy from the pain of others. She didn't quite understand people who did, but she tried not to judge since she certainly had her own faults. So it is incorrectly labeled, correct? Talia sighed heavily and pressed her lips together making a <laughs> sound. Yes and no. How is it both well? Technically and legally, Greekles aren't pets, so yes, it shouldn't be filed under human pets. But also, it is a pet because us humans are overly optimistic, more crazy. Obviously, but I do not see what the human propensity for self-endangerment has to do with the correct labeling of media. So, I can retag this rather than file it correctly under dangerous animals, However, within a week, the automated filing intelligence, AFI, will put the right back into the pet section. Lots of people are going to retag the video, since that's where they expect to see it. And that's what the media was created under. 
It should not matter if many incorrect people say a thing that is wrong. The number of incorrect voices does not change the fact that they are incorrect. If only the fact that thing was true was enough to convince people to treat it as a fact, then humans and most other intelligent species wouldn't repeat history. The fact is, it'll get retagged because some very stubborn or dense people believe Greekles can be pets. The Atlantico made a low, humming whistle. I must admit, we also suffer from the habit of mass incorrectness, so I am not so dense as to not understand. May I question, though? Of course. Like I said, you're the nicest person I've interacted with all week, and I love sharing information. Why would this human female attempt to make a Greekle her pet? Are you humans not the species that discovered the Greekle? I'm fairly certain the videos from First Contact were quite popular in the information-sharing spaces. Yeah, uh, thing is, they are adorable when their mouths are closed, so, uh... People think that they are cute, they can be tamed or, at the very least, sated, and made docile. But every encounter with the Greekle, hungry or not, ends like this video. Right, uh, um, I can't really explain it. But I can tell you humans are like Greekles, in the same way they eat anything and everything in sight. I can guarantee humans will at some point try to make anything and everything into a pet, especially if it's adorable. The Atlantico was quiet for several moments, and then set the hard disk on the desk. Would it be too much to refile this anyways? <laughs> no problem at all. Just don't get cross at me when it's back under pets in a few days. I would not be angry with you. You did not design the Afi. Why would I be angry with you for something you did not do? If I could answer that, I would be a very wealthy psychologist. It looks like I have another patron to assist, but it was very nice interacting with you. You as well. My name is Seven Warbling Whistles, Timothy. Nice to meet you, Timothy. I'm Talia. Have a great day. Talia turned to assist the other patron, Pesita Walken, who had walked into her desk and was literally waving around the hard disk in one of its feathered appendages. It made several very loud squawks, which were even louder than the parrot species from Earth the aliens bore a striking resemblance to. If a parrot had been crossbred with a pterodactyl and a six-limbed mammal. What is animal excrement? Oh, goody. End of story. 1925. Story number one. Demons Awoken. Written by Lone Donut. There is a human saying, to beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning shears into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Our research has missed old religious texts in our scanning of their culture. And how could we not? There was not real need to research archaic beliefs. The sole confederacy was easy prey. A species that had focused on science and not war. They built grand research stations in orbit of their planet, colonized their oversized moon, and spread to the fourth planet in their system. The most they had were patrol ships to keep off the odd criminal. But no warships. No soldiers. They focused on rehabilitation and re-education of their worst people. They were pacifists. And they were ripe for enslavement. 
Now ships had arrived, and they broadcast on all known subspace channels, reaching out to the void to greet us, to welcome us to their home. They assumed that we came in peace, to meet them as equals. They were excited. As the first of our cruisers took up orbit, we fired upon their homeworld, launching their space elevators from their moors and pushing them out of orbit. Their capital city was burned from orbit, and their meager defenses were crushed. Our breachhead was built on their home, and their people were enslaved. To strip the spinning blue gem of its resources for our empire, their moon fell next, and we grew complacent. We figured we had them, so why would we push? We were wrong. The first sign of trouble came from a drone carrier, which suddenly went silent. Communication errors happened, so we considered nothing of it. Next, a camp on the surface went blank, so we were sent soldiers to explore. We found our men and women dead, some looking so shocked in their chairs, it was as if the attacker had materialized from nowhere. We now sent boarding troops to the carrier, however, they never made it. Its fighter and bomber complement turned on us. We shut it down, watched it as it crashed to the surface, and we figured, not enough, that this little rebellion would end. Again, we were wrong. Mining and cargo ships from planets called Mars arrived, but they did not carry goods. Their mining drones swarmed the ships, punching holes in their hulls and stripping the atmosphere away. We watched in horror as the bodies of our comrades floated into space. Our losses were now mounting. Even as we destroyed their rigged-up attack craft, we paid for every kill with blood. I was an Earth... When I saw the horror, we had awoken firsthand. A mining exosuit walked down the street, armor strapped to it in an ad hoc way, turning a tool into a weapon, carried in its hands were our weapons. And, as a lone assailant advanced towards me, shrugging off energy weapons and ordnance, only a lucky hit brought it down. Still, the rebel climbed from his armor, and I saw his eyes, not those of a captured pacifist, but those of a killer. We learned later the man had been a chemical engineer, never served with the patrols, and had built the suit himself in private. We assumed he had snapped. Surely the humans couldn't go from pacifists to warriors. They were a peaceful species. But we dug into their archives. We learned their history, the monsters that we had happened upon. But now they had 300 years of peace and prosperity to build new technologies. And with them, we learned what they could do. It was called a military-industrial complex. The ability to turn any technological marvel into a weapon was no unique. But the way in which they did it was... Most species developed nuclear energy before they developed nuclear weapons. Humanity done the reverse. Their chemical rockets were not made to deliver them into space, but adapted from weapons to do so. After they had turned those weapons on themselves, they had learned to find peace, quell their demons. We had reawoken those demons and given them more technology than ever before to do it. Their ability to strip materials to energy to convert it back to raw matter had been used to mine without destroying massive areas of land. And to build ships of exploration 
and peace. Now those fleet yards orbiting a planet we thought was an easy picking. They cranked out warships in bulk that we had never seen. Hardware meant for construction and rescue was now used to armored troops to attack. One armored assailant became hundreds, then thousands. Our own ships were captured, reversed engineered, and then turned on us. We watched in horror as our slaves became boogeymen. Our hope had been to glass the planet, to hand them a defeat, but we never got the chance. One by one, our legions fell. Once our ships were controlled by them, and our communications with our home severed, we were brought before them. We learned of their rules of war, what they would do to prisoners, and how we would be treated. We didn't expect the mercy we gained, nor do we deserve it, I'm sure. After all, we would not afford them the same. I was treated to a tribunal and told that I was to be held accountable for my crimes and the crimes of my people, and my execution ordered. Led to a small room, I was hooked up to IVs and promised that it would be painless. As they added the chemicals to my veins, I could only think of my home and hope that they could forgive me for awakening humanity. I could only pray that one day these beasts would return their swords to plowshares and the warriors would rest again. The galaxy can only hope. End of story. Story number two. Tunnel Vision, written by DM of the Tomb. Personal letter translated posthumously from civilian Adark Epai to the 7th Galactic Senator, Apex Lorne Oyen, during the human immigration crisis post-first contact. Have you ever seen a human in person? I don't mean the humans who tiptoe and jump through hoops to appeal to you during negotiations. I mean real humans. Humans out there living in their lives like anyone else. The ones who you lock up. Ever since first contact, you have written out policy after policy with the intent of limiting the humans to brand them as outcasts. They are a very young race, and yet achieved FTL in a fraction of the time it took us. Sure, simple concepts to us are new and advanced to them, but they can learn. And they are learning, even now, just as we did so long ago. But you seem to fear they are too quick to learn. You say the fact they advance so quickly is precisely why they must be segregated. But I believe you are simply afraid of their potential. Because maybe you have realized that they are not fast. We are just slow. But why is that? Why are humans who you seem intent on keeping away so quick to learn, so persistent in their endeavors, so bold risk-takers? I've spent time among the humans, in the camps which you detained them, away from their friends and family. Many crossed into Alliance's space and were caught, so you out them there to rot. But did you ever consider what it took to get that far? These humans told me their stories, told me of their families, goals, their passions, in life. And after it all, I have two words to explain the way humans think. Tunnel vision. To a human, there is no such thing as being content where you are. 
There is always more to see, more to travel, more to improve, more that they can be. No single human ever stops aspiring for greatness, even if they don't know what their potential greatness is. Once a human has a goal, and they always have a goal, they will stop at nothing to pursue it. They call this tunnel vision. They will set their sights on what they want to do, and everything else around them becomes a blur. This is why the humans are faster than us. We have meandering through innovation, the majority of our population always being content to stay where they are. Meanwhile, the humans are never satisfied. It's not just one or two people working for their future per generation. It is all of them. That's why I, despite all your efforts to bar them from our borders and to brand them as dangerous, they still send envoy after envoy to negotiate with you. That's why, despite your insistence to detain and imprison any human court within our space, they continue to face countless hardships to come here anyway, from across the stars. And those who I spoke to within your border detentions have not yet lost their passion. They have not lost sight of their goals. They still have that tunnel vision. You claim that they will invade and replace us, overwrite generations of tradition in an instant. But we are ready for the humans, ready to give them help and accept their help in return. So maybe you're just afraid that you are the one getting replaced and that they'll take away your undeserved paycheck. End of story. 1926. Story number one. The Three Golden Rules Written by Jeremiah Hellrider In the Galactic Empire, there are three golden rules that each one of the 345 elector species needs to follow if they want to survive. Never fight against the Galactic Emperor alone. Never let your population starve. And always pay your mercenaries. Since the day Grand Emperor Dallas I united all nations in the galaxy under the rule of his galactic empire, there had been relative peace across the galaxy. Each one of the sentient species in the empire were considered electors who decided galactic laws in the Grand Assembly held every ten years. They all had a couple systems close to their home planets and were left to themselves to grow as they wished, as long as they did not challenge the power of the Grand Emperor. But of course, sometimes electors did fight each other, and even formed coalitions against the Emperor himself. Of course, the Emperor always had more power than the electors. As the borders of the Empire grew, so did the elector species. In 563 AE, after Emperor, the galactic community welcomed humanity into the Empire as they had finally discovered FTL technology, and were very close to the borders of the Empire. Humanity had recently gone through a very large war, and they really needed the economic help that the Empire would provide. So they gladly joined as the 346th Elector of the Empire. At first, humanity adapted well to the environment of the Empire. Trade and mining deals were made with companies and other species. Huge amounts of human books, poems, pictures, and more were sent to the Imperial Archives to add to the Galactic Collection. Humans even made a name for themselves as great mercenaries since they had been fighting for years before joining the Empire. But humanity was also surrounded by enemies on all sides. 
Many resources in hand around the human-owned solar systems were still untapped. Resources that some wanted for themselves. In particular, there were large quantities of the ore Dalifos, similar to the Imperial Palace, 3,947 children every year, and approximately 4,568 planets. This ore was named after the first emperor, which was used in ship armor building. The problem was the fact that Dalifus was not a very common, and in order to extract it from a planet fast, you needed to destroy large parts of the land and drain huge amounts of fresh water. So, anyone who wants to buy human Dalifus had wait for long amounts of time before receiving it. At the same time, the Emperor Saslos I was getting ready to put down one of his electors and a couple of other species who were starting to challenge his power through a coalition. So Saslos needed a lot of Dalifus for his battleships. Sadly for him, most of the Empire's Dalifus supply had held by the coalition against him, so he turned to the humans for his needs. After realizing that he could never get enough ore to build his ships and the current production rate, Sassler sent a message to the leading council of Earth known as the UNE, United Nations of Earth. He requested humanity to temporarily abandon their current home planet of Earth, and until the soon-to-be war ends, let it become a planet under the Emperor's direct control. Humanity's population would stay in one of the less populated planets on the Empire until the war ends. The payment for the Empire's quick occupation would be war reparations from the defeated coalition. However, it was not promised that Earth would be the return to the same as it was. Clearly, Earth's surface would be destroyed along with all native life and anything humanity built. The Emperor needed his ore fast. It was clear that his offer was made in a rush and that the Emperor did not really expect humanity to actually refuse since even though the Emperor's main fleet was not ready for his secondary fleet, could wipe out all of humanity's fleet within hours. And that was when humanity broke the first golden rule. The Emperor waited for two days for humanity to answer, then four more days, then another week. No answer came from Earth. Finally, he ordered his second Imperial fleet to destroy any human opposition that may be present on human systems and take Earth by force if needed. But the Imperial fleet did not need to lift a finger to occupy the space around Earth, because all human fleets were gone. They were expected to be at least 14 corvettes, but none of them would be seen. The commanding officer of the second fleet quickly sent the human leadership a message, demanding that they start abandoning Earth now, or the fleet would start a orbital bombardment. Soon after this message was sent back from Earth, stating that the UNE refused the Empire's offer. Just a couple minutes after the message was received, the second fleet opened fire on Earth. They did not really want to genocide humanity, because that would cause too much political problems. But they could still destroy farms and factories to ensure that there were no resources to support humanity on Earth. Humanity would surely capitulate soon. Sadly for the Empire, it turns out that humanity had a habit of breaking rules. The fleet expected that humanity would surrender after a week since no trade and limited production, there would be a massive starvation. But as the second week of Earth's siege passed, it became clear that humanity was not surrendering. Pressured by the Emperor, the commanding officer finally ordered messages to the human cities around Earth to evacuate. The fleet would start bombarding population centers. Few answered, fewer accepted defeat. 
with it the cities of Earth started to get destroyed, one by one. But the Empire was once again disappointed. There was no influx of refugees, messages begging them to stop or even reply. Orbital photographs of human cities showed no signs of activity. Soon after that, the fleet's officers realized what was happening. The human fleet had already carried away most of the population from Earth with the 14 lost corvettes. The remaining population was at least 90% less than what it was before the war. Most of the remaining humans were probably underground or in desolate parts of the planet. With that, the Admiralty realized that they needed to land troops on Earth to properly secure the planet. However, the orbital bombardment had destroyed most of the landing sites on Earth, so soldiers were sent with shuttles. After the necessary materials and personnel were brought into orbit, the invasion began. If only they knew how much the humans enjoyed breaking the rules. When the first shock troops landed on Earth, they expected a small, lightly armored, undisciplined human resistant group to attack them. But once again, the humans surprised them. Not only were they all well-equipped human soldiers attacking them, but there were also Klogaris mercenaries amongst the humans. Klogaris were one of the best mercenaries in the galaxy, and they only fought for the highest bidder. How could the humans, with almost no resources or money, afford them? Unknown to the Empire, the humans had spent two weeks before the war digging tunnels and hiring mercenaries to defend Earth, sending the rest of the civilian population to secretly founded colonies, and it was no coincidence that they hired Klogaris mercenaries. The Klogaris were warlike species, and they put honor above all. Joining a group of mercenaries was also considered a rite of passage for them too. And when they saw how humans resisted the Empire, even as their cities and planet was turned to ash, the Klogaris started to respect mankind. Now they were fighting against the Empire with mankind. They even refused to get paid and stayed with the humans, not for money, but for honor, and their hatred for the Empire, who considered them savage brutes. Outside Earth, things were not going great for the Empire either. The Coalition was mobilizing their forces and getting ready to attack the Empire. The invasion of Earth was the main justification for their aggression. The Empire had managed to gather some ships to defeat the Coalition, but half of their fleet was still busy sieging Earth. After another month of ground combat, the dam finally broke. The Coalition concluded that the Empire was breaking intergalactic law by trying to eliminate sentient species. The Emperor decided that Earth could not be taken. But humanity was not done yet. The 14 Corvettes and the rest of the human population had not stood idle. With the new founder colonies and some outside donations, they managed to bring up the human fleet size to about half the second Imperial fleet. As the last day of the siege began, and the Imperial troops were being brought back to their ships, the human fleet attacked them. Because all the Second Fleet ships were busy bombarding Earth. They could not redirect fire now the new human ships fast enough. Within hours, more than half of the Second Fleet was destroyed, and the rest ran away. After the Battle of Earth concluded, one final fight took place near Empire's capital, which was quickly won by the Coalition, as the Imperial Fleet was outnumbered. The next year, the last of the Emperor's planets fell, Empress Saslos was disposed for another new emperor from one of the Coalition species. Many planets and huge amounts of money were also taken from the ex-emperor and given to the UNE as a gift. From that day on, there are four rules that apply to all species in the galaxy, except 
humanity. Never fight against the Galactic Emperor alone. Never let your population starve and always pay your mercenaries. Never invade Earth. End of story. 1,927. Story number one. And Farm Earth, written by Dr. Blackjack21. The streets were filled with screams of terror and madness. What few news stations still functioned were proclaiming it the end of times. People had gathered in their houses of worship. They prayed for the respite from whatever deity or forces they worshipped. But any semblance of divine was absent from the world. All that remained was a face of living nightmares, seared into the minds of all that had beheld it. All hope of heaven or any peaceful afterlife was gone. Something older and worse than the devil was here to claim what was his. As Arthur Holon, the changing, devourer of hope, and the ancient god of unwashed socks, felt his, her, its friend smack him, her, it, in the back of the head. Looking back, he, she, it, could see the displaced of Yazelawe, the ever-chosen, bringer of light and champion of the underappreciated moments. Dude, you've shifted to a plane of existence too close to their own. They can sense you. You know they can't perceive and understand infinite beings like ourselves. You're freaking them out. This is going to be worse than the time you caused the Dark Ages. Azathul Hulun, bringer of despair, the hunger of the dark, and lord of crumbs in the bread, rubbed the back of his, her, its head, and backed a few dimensions of reality away from Earth sheepishly. Sorry, uh, sorry, uh, I didn't mean to. I couldn't help it, though. They're just so cute. I mean, uh... Look at them. They're, they're fine uh, lives, running around trying to find purpose for existence. They even invented something as pointless, as ridiculous as time. Time! <laughs> the absurdity of it. Yazathawale, the lord of hope, guardian of peace, and guard of perfectly ripe fruit, looked down at his, her, its earth farm with a frown. Nah, man, you freaked them out so bad, they're going to war over it, blaming each other for your existence slash presence. A bunch of their infinite timelines are going to end with nukes if I don't do something. Ezathul Hulun, the hunter of shadows, the essence of hatred, and the lord of mosquito bites, looked at his friend with confusion. But I thought you said that we couldn't interfere with them because of our mere presence drives them insane. What are you going to do? Shaking his head at his friend, Yazethwala, bringer of dreams, lord of inspiration and singer of cheerful tunes, explained. No, they won't like it, but it's kind of like one of them giving their dog unnecessary vaccinations. They might not understand it or enjoy it at the time, but it's for their own good. You just gotta use a soft touch with them. Much what I mean. With that, Yazethwala, the father of kindness, guardian of eternity, the giver of lucky breaks, Based a few dimensions of reality closer to Earth before speaking to it in a voice surprisingly similar to a person trying to speak with and soothe an extremely stressed animal. Hey there, guys, listen, uh, I don't like to meddle in your affairs too much, but you can't be using nukes like that. You're gonna hurt yourselves if you keep it up. No two people heard the same words spoken that day, but everyone heard them nonetheless, though perhaps it would be more accurate to say they felt the words, seared into their very souls of every man, woman, and child alive. There were many discussions, debates, and even wars fought over the actual phrasing of the words. 
with entire religions being created or ground into dust accordingly. Though not once were nuclear weapons considered, for fear of drawing the attention of the thing that lurked in the deep cosmos to prey upon the sanity of men. Eventually, a truce was struck between several of the more antagonistic factions, and in formal ceremony, the newly accepted interpretation of the words was to be read aloud by the prophet of the new religion born from the ashes of an old. Though a third of the world's population had died in the war of the words, the healing could finally begin. The dignified elderly man unfurled the scroll with a grand flourish and solemnly read aloud, I, the Lord your God, give unto you this, the eleventh commandment of salvation. Thou shalt not wield the weapon of the atom against thy neighbor, nor thy enemy. Asul Hulun, the laughing god, the champion of smugness, and the voice of I told you so, looked over at his, her, its friend. A soft touch, uh? Yazathwila, the abashed, lord of regret and the shaker of heads, looked a little embarrassed, but defiant. It's still better than the Dark Ages were. End of story. Story number two. Raider, written by Mechakid. You call me pirate. I prefer privateer. UNS Mako drifted quietly through space. Engines tamped down to a minimum, all systems operations at the lowest possible settings. She had been fitted out for stealth, with a comprehensive suite of both passive and active systems. Engine baffles cooled her exhaust systems, and radiation-absorbing materials ensured that she would not be seen. To any observer, Mako was one with the darkness of space. Captain Grace Mahal pulled herself away from the targeting scope, and walked to the plot table. Her exo keyed in the data, and the hollow map displayed the track of the convoy. Optimum firing point is here. The red icon appeared on the map. Target will be in position in uh, 90 seconds. Grace nodded. Thank you, Mr. Morton. Weapons, make ready, run launchers one through six. Full spread by mark. Night, Captain. Outside the ship, the covers slid away from six of the ship's ten blisters, revealing a series of tubes. Inside each tube, a nuclear-tipped torpedo came quietly to life. The plot showed the projector position of the ship's drift slowly towards the red marker. Grace went back to the targeting scope, pressing her helmet against the rubber fitting as she swept the targeting array over each ship in the convoy. She pressed a button, feeding the target data to the launchers, bearing, range, speed, shield pattern, all recorded automatically. The seconds ticked down, and the convoy plodded on, blissfully unaware that they were being hunted. Ready? Launch! Magnetic induction hurled 36 weapons into space. A second later, the reaction drives on the torpedoes kicked in, and the weapons streaked towards their targets. The weapons crossed half the distance between the ships before they began to react, transports steering wildly to evade. Escorts used both jammers and plasma to try and protect their charges, and even succeeded in shooting down or fooling several of the weapons. It didn't matter. The darkness of space was dispelled violently as weapons found their marks, and twenty-two miniature suns blazed to life. The Krovac escorts searched desperately for their attacker, even going so far as to launch random plasma bolts on a vector that the torpedoes had come from. Grace laughed at the attempt. Mako was long gone. Five days later, UNS Mako drifted near planet Nocturne, 
deep in the Krovak territory. Quietly, she waited as a Krovak pleasure cruiser climbed out of orbit, heading towards the outer garden worlds. On the bridge, Grace licked her lips and pressed a small red button. Four SETI manufactured EM mines activated, lashing the pleasure cruiser with iron pulses, blowing out electronics and disabling the ship. Quickly, the Mako came to life, sliding towards the Krovak ship and matching up with it. Docking ports were aligned. The human marines forced their way through the airlocks. Trading behind them, Grace strode with confidence, her red-orange helmet contrasting the green form-fitting armor, mag boots clunking on the floor. Gunfire could be heard up ahead, but resistance was minimal compared to the violence her marines inflicted. In the observation lounge, the marines had gathered the crew and passengers. Two held the door as Grace stepped through, then stopped on the balcony. Who's the captain of the ship? A Krovak stood forward, a black mane framing his scaled face. Insolent human, how dare you think that you can... There was a bang like a crack of thunder, and where the Krovak's head once was, there was now empty space. As the body slumped to the floor, everyone else in the room looked up at Grace, her ancient hand cannon still smoking. They ask again, who is the captain of the ship? There was silence from the gathered Krovak. Then, one of the crew, a junior officer, knelt slowly. You are. The rest of the crew slowly knelt in submission. Congratulations, you get to live a little longer. Slowly, Grace removed her helmet with a free hand, letting her red hair flow into the weightlessness of the disabled ship. I'm Grace Mahal, and this ship now belongs to me. The Krovak destroyer burned hard, chasing the black ship through the void, lashing out with its plasma bolts. Behind it, a military convoy lay decimated, with four ships completely destroyed, and another seven seriously damaged. Grace laughed, and a crew cheered as the UNS Mako transitioned to jump space, leaving her pursuers behind. End of story. 1928 Story number one. A bit less uncaring, written by Sun Praising. The Galaxy was a lawless and uncaring place. No unification, every race for themselves. When the Gorgnar came to Earth, they lasered away all things in orbit and outside Earth atmosphere. Then, they demanded the entire population of Earth become their slaves. Earth was too far from their or anyone's empire to properly colonize. After China declared war on them and was swiftly annihilated by the technology, the Gorknar had tens of thousands of years more to develop. The rest of the nation sat together to come up with a plan to secure the survival of humanity. After three days of discussion, they asked the Gorknar to give them two Earth years to organize their population for transport and FTL communication equipment to contact them. While this did not happen often, it was not unheard of. The Grognar alone knew about 700 species with worlds they could reach with their FTL engines, and the galaxy had a lot of species with not even a homeworld left, bound to slavery or extinct. They accepted. When they returned to receive their prize, almost half of the population was gone. They were told that they revolted because they would rather die than be enslaved. While they highly doubted this explanation, they did not find much evidence of war or fights. They took what remained of humans on Earth with them, not knowing that the rest of them survived. 
Humanity used the new FTL communication to contact other races and made them an offer they would not refuse. We pledge 100 people to 10 Earth years of service for one starship each, still functioning and equipped with basic technology needed for longer FTL trips and small weapon systems. After that, they were to be paid. While humans are neither strongest nor their need to sleep aided them to sell themselves as workers, their endurance was quite exceptional, and many found hard work. They also had another advantage for this deal. While slaves were cheap and easy to come by, they were never loyal or motivated. Humans, which expected a payment, were both. With their loyalty, they earned a reputation of honesty and reliability. And so they worked hard for ten long years to come. The galaxy was a lawless and uncaring place. So most of the species they worked for tried to enslave them instead of paying them after ten years. Which was expected. The humans simply stopped working. Some even refused to eat. And they did not ask for much pay. From the economical standpoint, it made more sense to the aliens just to give them an outdated ship they wanted to scrap anyways and give in to their demands. The Forge Worlds needed their human workers, and they couldn't lose so many at once. So, most species they worked for accepted their demands. Some did not, and executed their workers, but their victims and actions wouldn't be forgotten. Eleven years after first contact, a lot of ships jumped to a point in space half a light year away from the Sol system. All of them, humans. All of them had planned for this moment since old nations released their plan. They exchanged information on where they lived, how to contact them, and how they made their money to survive the lawless void. The Grognar knew they were up to something, but were unable to catch them. The exchange was automated and didn't last even a minute. All those ships jumping off in different directions made it impossible to trace the warp of a single ship back to origin or destination on return. Most humans used their ships to ship goods from one system to another. Now they had finally had the way to contact each other. They formed a mix of corporations, army and government, the Terran Void Fleet. They sent money from richer human settlements to shippers to those to the poor to survive alone, and released the Shipper Codex. Since the Codex, not one shipment of goods was just stolen by the human shippers. Something that happened with all other shippers, be it due to greed or desperation. No species individualistic enough to man small freighters outside their own systems had enough empathy to finance their kind in mass like the humans did. This reputation, while not making them rich, gave them a solid income and a monopoly over inter-system transports, which turned out to be even more important. Sixteen years after first contact, the Terran fleet declared war on the Grognar. No more than two minutes later, the first battle of Sol began. A wild mix of armed freighters, outdated military spaceships, and a few human-built ships with all kinds of reverse-engineered technology from many species jumped right next to the cradle world of humanity. The initial Grognar warships had long left, leaving only a small outpost to mine for resources. While being heavily guarded for an outpost, they were no match for the human fleet. After destroying all military installations and ships of the Gorgnar, all of the fleet jumped off, facing the Gorgnar territories. 
The Gorgnar first laughed at the declaration of war. Humans had no way to capture a system of theirs with more than a small outpost, let alone hold a system against their navy. They sent a big fleet to the Sol system to show the galaxy what happened to those offending them. They didn't find the humans. Later, the Grognar High Commander received requests for escorts from all across the Empire. The freighters they owned, as well as any other freighter on their payroll, got attacked and destroyed by space pirates. The humans responsible called themselves freebooters, but the Grognar did not care. While the Gorgnar Empire had a big enough navy, it wasn't able to send enough ships to every freighter they needed to send out. Humans picked their targets with the fleet size they chose to bring and usually recovered the cargo to finance their war. Their enemies spent more and more for less and less freighters to come through. It wasn't clear at first, but the Empire was collapsing. The worlds with smaller populations are not self-sufficient and more or less surrendered to the humans by paying their horrendous prices for basic supplies. Bigger worlds were somewhat more stable, but far from immune. The elite did barely receive any luxury goods and the plummeting economy and lack of resources racked the lower classes. Tension on those worlds rose to open revolution from the Empire, something unheard of. Four. Over the course of four earthen years, the Grognar lost half their worlds to independence, and twenty-four small as well as three city worlds to other races, half of those humans. Earth, of course, among them. It was only then when peace was signed with the humans, which no longer were organized as the Void Fleet, but as the Terran Republic, the Void Fleet being the military not bound to local systems. The humans demanded their enemies the worlds they already conquered. Not much to the Empire, but a good start for the humans, as well as all humans they've ever taken. A very big fee for everyone who didn't make it. Half as reparations, half to prevent them from slaughtering them instead of turning them over. With those refreed and small surplus of money, they re-inhabited Earth. The worlds they've taken over, by every other species surprise, haven't been cleared of any Grognar. But they instead integrated them into their empire. They now paid their tribute to Earth, from the Gorgnar officials, the more stubborn imperialist, unfit or unpopular among lower Grognar classes were replaced. Mostly by humans, but also by Gorgnar. Their damages rebuilt, or at least reimbursed, their culture and values introduced and spread. The worlds are now open to any race, ship, and individual which wants to enter and respects their laws. They quickly outpaced other species in technology, not only because of their own thirst for knowledge and ingenuity, but also because they have so many non-humans in their republic. They all have a different view of the world and come up with new ideas unthought of others. Most of them have been enslaved on first contact and escaped or freed by their laws. Any slave entering Terran space is free by their law, and they enforce their laws. They are the only race once enslaved but able to rescue themselves. The only species known to make peace with the enemies and survive so far. And the only species which accepts others and most importantly, my offspring.
the only ones who gave shelter to refugees whose homeworlds had been taken. Those like us. The galaxy is a bit less lawless and uncaring. Now that they are here. End of story. 1929 The Orphan Fleet Written by Chimpanzee Rides The sound of rain droned on in Theo Marquis's head, heralded by rolling black clouds blocking out the sun. The downpour started earlier that morning. He didn't like rain, but would he miss it? Placing a hand on his chest, he felt his heart beating through his button-up. He tried to focus on slow, deep breaths. Can't let anyone see. The rain hurt his joints and forced him to constantly adjust his stance. Shifting his feet, the rough concrete grabbed the soles of his shoes. He stumbled. It was always his feet that betrayed him. Why did today have to come? Admiral Marquis, said an aide from the dark navy raincoat. You're on in 30 seconds. Marquis barely had a chance to look up before they turned and headed back up the metal great stairs. The whole staircase shifted and changed with each step. The age job was to get him on stage at the right time. Nothing more. Not that it mattered. He had to give his speech. That was why everyone was here. Why anyone wanted to waste their time listening to some old admiral was beyond him. There was nothing new to say, and so little time left. A hand on his shoulder snapped him back. He'd been drifting off into thought a lot lately. Too much to think about. Too many unpleasant thoughts he didn't enjoy having. Looking to the owner of the hand, he saw her dull blue eyes looking back. They used to be bright and filled with life. Now, they were cold like. A wet spot erupted on his cheek. He wiped it away and glanced up at the side in relief. The rain had leaked through a seam in the tent roof. It wasn't even shot craftsmanship. It was just raining that hard. Marky paused himself to look back into her dull blue eyes. He hated that she felt the same way he did, but mostly he hated that it was his fault. Well, at least partially. She put on a smile, not one that was pained in an obvious way, but one that hid pain in support of another. This is the job now, Theo, she said. We just have to focus and get it done. She looks away towards the others behind her. Some were better at hiding the pain than Clara. Some were worse. All five of them shared a kinship that no other human shared. The world was on their shoulders, and they couldn't fail. Everything was at stake. Theo nodded. This is the job now, he said, turning to meet the gaze of the aide returning from the metal great stairs. Neither of them had to say anything. Marquise headed towards the stairs. It was time. At the top of the stairs, he could see some of the crowd standing in the pouring rain. He reached in his jacket and took out a stiff folded paper. It felt expensive. The aide gave the signal, but before he could head out, the sound of the other four opening their umbrellas behind him gave him pause. Don't cover me, he said. This is a speech that should be delivered in the rain. Whether by his tone or expression, they knew not to question the request. He stepped out into the rain and went behind the podium. Two of his companions placed themselves on one side and two on the other. Large droplets wrapped against the umbrellas, sending small sprays his way. He looked up to the largest crowd he'd ever seen, 
struggling to pull his eyes away. He feigned a cough and peered down at his papers. The raindrops made heavy splashes on the thick paper before soaking in. Marquis took a deep breath. In this humanity's darkest hour, we must focus on the light. Never before in our collective history have so many, from so many different cultures come together to strive and work towards a singular purpose. The continuation of our species. It was not our hubris that brought us to the brink of annihilation, but a cosmic roll of the dice. The odds were stacked against us, and we had a job to do. Marquis willed his face to look resolute, despite the weather's determination to wash it away, like words in rain. Blue ink streaks were running down the page as he folded the soap papers and put them in his jacket pocket. He'd memorized the speech a long time ago. In 1969, we went to the moon. Not because it was easy, but because it was hard. Now, in 2042, we must leave our native star system. Not because we want to, but because we have to. 23 years ago, our scientists detected 57 stellar mass black holes approaching our solar system on a collision course. The riots, death, and calamity were widespread for three long years. Those were truly sad days. We fought each other when we should have worked together. We hated when we should have loved. The worst of all, we wasted our most precious commodity. Time. Time to be together. Time to enjoy life. Time to find a solution. Fortunately, in the end, reason and compassion won out over our baser instincts, and we emerged from the ashes stronger and more unified than before. He looked out into the crowd. The people in the back were invisible to him through the sheets of rain, but he knew they stood still and silent like statues. The wet air chilled him to the bones. This was the birth of Project Ark. The world over, ideas were sorted and catalogued, plans were made and tested, and a final strategy chosen. We would leave Earth, our home, in search of a safe haven amongst the stars. Our first interstellar trip would be fraught with danger and would require all we, Earth, and the entire solar system had to give. We were going to save humanity at all required costs. Marquis shuddered as the crowd chanted the words in unison. They had become a mantra for everyone, the project that would save them. Not even the cold rain could drown out the cry. We stripped mine the mother that gave us life for all she was worth. We drained her lakes, ripped out her forests, and stole the very earth from whence she got her name. This was her last gift to us. Anything we needed to survive. We started a massive conservation campaign, storing as many animals and insects as we could, and gene sequencing those that we couldn't. Next, we struck out in the rest of the solar system, gathering more raw resources and performing test flights. A lot of brave souls chose to sacrifice what little time they had left on Earth to go out and ensure our valiant effort succeeded. We were racing against the clock, and many people died as a result. Accidents happened, and mistakes were made. Never forget the lives lost in the Asteroid 8 disaster. He trailed off and lowered his head. Water poured down from the sky, dripped off his hair and over his face. 
The sound of rain soaked the moment of silence, and those that observed it. At all required costs, said Theo softly. At all required costs, the crowd chanted back. And we've paid that cost time and time again. We've ravaged the earth and left her barren and polluted. We've sent our sons and daughters to die in the cold of space. But now, he said, slamming his fist in the podium, now it is time to reap the reward. Humanity will live on. Those of us chosen and trained will live on, he said, gesturing to his war companions. Those of you who've won the genetic lottery will live on. One hundred million humans will live on in humanity's new home for the next seven years. Four counter-rotating O'Neill cylinders escorted by asteroid-based support ships. On these ships, we will travel to the closest planet, Proxima Centauri B, and make it our home. If it cannot be made suitable for human habitation, then it will journey on until we have found a planet that we can call home. Marquis took a deep breath and steeled himself for the next part. To those of you who we are leaving behind, I sincerely wish that we did not have to. The crowd started to chant at all required costs, but Marquis raised a hand to silence them. Confused looks and murmurs were exchanged, but Theo waited for them to die down. I chose not to opt in my family on my chosen status. Instead, I elected for them to have the same chances that everyone else did in the genetic lottery. Following my example, he said, looking to the people on either side of him, my executive officers have done the same. Only one of our family members won the lottery. Each and every one of us leaving tomorrow is experiencing loss. We will carry this burden, this sorrow, this cost, for the rest of our lives, regardless of whether or not it was required. Humanity will live on, but you and Mother Earth will not be forgotten. Thank you. Thunderous applause. Admiral Theo Marquis leaned in his head. He looked at the dark grey sky as the rain washed it all away. Now the real job started. End of story. 1930. Story number one. Humans use what? Written by Steel Blue 8. You use what kind of engines? Cries the second disaster response commissioner in a shocked and deeply confused tone. The haphazardly dressed human at one end of the table nods in response to the shot. I'm not joking. We found them cheaper and more reliable. They simply have less parts. About five hours earlier. Disaster response call. Commissioner Kerskup was not having a good time of things. At 4.24 a.m., the Terran Freight spacecraft, Crosco, number C2276-HL, had entered an orbit around Ares's second smallest moon on a routine refuel stop. Engines flared with the characteristic orange-white of human sublight engines. When the entire ship went up, a violent blast shredded the blocky freight vessel into orbital debris that was now raining down on the barren mock below. Almost immediately, the finely tuned machinery of the Disaster Response Corps sprung into action, and the Volpine Commissioner had been dragged out of his comfortable sleep and straight into the offices. Within an hour, an investigation team assembled and underway with Kurska as the leader. 
The secretary finishes explaining the start to finish of what they know so far, and the commissioner chewing on the stick of plant-based stimulant similar to the usage of coffee, a common habit as demonstrated by the teal tint of her teeth, before staring blankly at her neatly filed report in front of her, and stating in a monotone form voice, That's impossible. Before the unfortunate secretary, even less pleased to be here than she is, can answer, she continues. You tell me the first response team thinks the explosion started in the engines and moved up to the ship. That is impossible. A rocket engine can't do that. They can overheat. They can melt the exhaust cone. They can shatter and will melt the reactor plates. They can corrode themselves to dust or gimbal right out of their mountings and a million other faults. But unless you're in an atmosphere with oxygen, a rocket engine will not explode. She's right, of course. Such things is entirely unheard of. Since the JDSP, human spirit, arrived in Erisk space and heralded the modern age, there was only been one single rocket explosion, one in the upper atmosphere of their whole world, and the direct result of an attack by godforsaken idiots. So, sabotage. The debate rages on all the while. More information steadily arrives. The absurdity, streamlined bureaucracy of the Erisk putting any Terran disaster response to shame. The cleanup operation complete just four hours after the incident. Half the parts are catalogued and laid out for investigation, and already, sabotage ruled out. There's no motive, no bomb. The ship was hauling mostly empty containers with the same crew that have staffed it for the past six years. Finally, on a full stomach and empty platter in the middle of the table, Kurska's mind had moved to other matters. What about the secondary fuel tank? prompted nods of agreement from five other response team commissioners around the table. True, it has an entirely different geometry. And reinforcements, they can handle much denser gases than the primary. Do we have access to the schematics for the class? Not within five days. Humans administrators move slower than native flower species, known to move towards brighter areas. Devil rising again as theories of half-baked ideas fly around the table, centered on that mysterious extra fuel tank, seen in not a single Erisk ship design, the secretary sharply cutting in and silencing things for a moment with a statement of, Can't we just ask the exchange mechanic? An awkward pause as all eyes turn towards them. The exchange mechanic is the nearest available human. Everyone in the room knows that, sent by the cultural integration program. That one of their nations is running bringing human engineering principles to Arisk problems. The secretary stupidly continues, All of our ships use a, uh, a set of basic parts. They're that are the same purpose between models. If the same holds true for human, uh, Terran craft, we don't need schematics, we just ask one, a human, I mean. Once the furless, flimsy-looking mechanic had been summoned to the team office, it takes him mere moments to glance at the photos of the destroyed secondary fuel tanks and give them an answer. It says right here, there on the warning sign, that's an oxidizer tank. It takes a bit more probing from the officials and the incredulous shot of, You use what kind of engines? Before they can decipher what the tired human means. Chemical-fired rocket engines, humans in the modern age, use chemical-fired rocket engines, Kurska states in a tired tone of voice. Of course they do. Sure, traveling to the stars on a godforsaken bomb, despite the alternatives they invented themselves. 
a very uh, human. Ultimately, the disaster was filed away with only a brief investigation needed, a result of an overworked maintenance staff by human corporations, and for the Arisk, the only policy change. A human engineer joining the permanent roster of the Disaster Response Corps, uncalled to consult on matters of the absurd engineering practices of the Terran populace. Translator's note, while the term translates most easily as godforsaken, it is analogous with barbarous or uncivilized or anti-science, and most literally translates as outside the domain of advancement. Advancement being both the term used in English and the name of one of their deities. End of story. Story number two. Prove me wrong, written by I am the hype TFS. The human ambassador slowly stood to his feet, all eyes of the Galactic Union representatives turning their gaze upon him. All the media drones from the various news outlets focused on his face. There were bags under his eyes, and he kept a hand on the table in front of him, as if worried that he might not be able to stand firmly with the support. This gathering had not been scheduled, and the members only assembled at the behest of the human. The request was simple and polite. It merely asked for a short time to address the representatives, and assured the recipients that the matter was not dire, and if they could not attend, there would be no issue. But they had all come. They had all come because they had been reminded time and time again that if you ignored humanity's whispered words, you would not be able to block out its roar. I apologize. I am not quite as eloquent as I usually am. But the last few days have brought sleepless nights in their wake. As much as I am here as a representative for my species, I must confess that my next words come from me as an individual, though I sincerely hope that they resonate with the collective consciousness of my people. He took a deep breath and released an even deeper sigh before continuing, as if what he had to say was physically straining and the weight pressing him down would only be lifted when he said what he needed to. I am afraid, not of conflict, not of destruction. These concepts have been with my kind since the beginning, and they will continue to be our faithful companions until we cease to be. I am afraid, not of tyrants, not of atrocities. We have seen and rooted out despots and sought to protect and afflicted with all we have, no matter who is suffering, as many of my colleagues could attest, but will refuse to do so out of self-interest. His eyes sweep across the room as he pauses, noticeably stopping on the ambassadors of several warmongering species who keep their place in the Union through legal loopholes and technicalities. Many of them winced at his words, having felt humanity's wrath in the past, not eager to feel that sting again, but also unwilling to voice their anger and humiliation, lest they be further condemned for actions that prompted such a painful response to begin with. Others, who had yet to test the limits of humanity's patience, or personally experienced the breadth of their vengeance, simply glared back at him in silent defiance. I am afraid of being right. I am afraid of every time another report crosses my desk that suggests the suffering of others because I desperately want to be wrong. I am afraid because every time I am right, a rage burns so deeply within me that I can scarcely believe that I am the same person when justice is dispensed and the rage is cooled. 
Something stirs within the collective heart of humanity when we see wrongs being committed, be it amongst ourselves or by those around us. It is something that runs deeper than our genes and I suspect goes even beyond the bonds of our very souls. It is a primal urge, an eternal discontent at even the notion of injustice. It has driven us since the beginning and with the reason we stand proudly amongst your civilization today. But it hurts. God, it hurts. During these past few sleepless nights, I've even toyed with the idea that maybe the only reason we fight injustice is to selfishly soothe our own pain. It horrifies me to consider that maybe in the earlier stages of my species' existence, we could ignore the ache and turn a blind eye to the wrongs around us. That the only reason we finally stopped to help our fellow man or beast was because we let the pain grow until it became unbearable. And that is why I have asked you all here today to make a plea, to beg of you that the next time a report crosses my desk, the next time I feel that deep rage stir at the thought of injustice. He let his back bend as his other hand joined the other to support the weight of his upper body as he leaned heavily upon them as he trailed off mid-sentence. His head bowed as if the weight he felt before he spoke had somehow gotten even heavier. He was silent for a moment that seemed to stretch on for minutes when in reality perhaps 30 seconds had passed. When he finally lifted his head, the Union Hall, the most secure room in the known universe, was flooded with such a concentrated hostility from a single human that fear responses ran rampant. The ambassador of the various prey species huddled together and desperately tried to force down the urge to bolt for the doors. The predators bared their fangs, bared their frills, and raised their hackles as they felt the instinct to defend themselves flood their minds. What stood before them didn't feel like a human. It felt old, as if a predator from the dawn of time itself had inhabited the body of a man before them, staring out at them from an ancient past. Nothing had physically changed about the human ambassador. His hands weren't balled into tight fists. His lips didn't curl into a snarl. Nothing about him displayed any intent of a threat. Nothing except his eyes. The beast that stirred within humanity's heart stared out through those eyes. The beast whose hunger knew no end. The beast who knew no mercy for those it turned its fangs against. The beast stared out at the media drones and the ambassadors and spoke with a human voice. Prove me wrong. End of story. 1931 Story number one. Glory, written by Echoing Cascade. 224 had trained for five years, six months, two weeks, four days, and approximately three hours for this moment. The human known as 224 was going over everything that had led to this moment. Today, the UNA would be shown the power of the human mind. They had invaded Earth one afternoon some six years ago unimpeded by the Terran fleet or ground forces. Not because they wouldn't fight or found such a venture pointless, but because they simply couldn't. The Una, a race of powerful telepaths that targeted the young spacefaring race, the fight lasted until their colony ships entered the solar system. 
After that, the Terran's defenders found their world to fight. Gone. They had known the Una were on their way thanks to the Slon, the nomadic race of traders and sometimes pirates who risked what little they had left after a costly war with humanity to warn them. Humanity had left Saul with as many civilians as they could fit into ships. Throughout the known galaxy, the Una were known for conquering inhabited systems, doing horrible testing and medical procedures to the local populace, and then leaving when they failed to find what they were looking for or got bored. Tutor Fall had been one of the many unlucky ones left behind. On that day, Tutor Fall had been caught, tested, and unlike many others who were directed to walk into the colony ship to never return, was given a white room, food, water, and an injection that inflicted blinding pain that only subsided with unconsciousness. Upon waking, Tutor Fall was in a larger room with three other children. They all received the same mental command. Kill. The children did not use fists, feet, knives, elbows, or teeth, however. New abilities manifested instead. One produced electricity from his hands, but another seemed to blur in and out of existence. Two to four had a headache, with which resulted in three other children's heads popping like overripe grapefruits, crushed in a vice. Two to four was then ordered to return to the tiny white room. This went on every day for a month. At first, two to four would try to control this power, refusing to kill for the masters, but the struggle was futile. Worse, the fights were increasing in intensity, and if two to four's concentration wavered for even a second, death would be inevitable. Two to four slowly mastered these new mental powers, becoming able to see into the minds of the other children, devise strategies to defeat them, and by ignoring every feeling, forgetting every semblance of self, two to four became powerful, more so than even the Una knew. One day, Tutufor had been sent to kill again, but this time, rather than simply following orders, Tutufor tried to trace the signal back to its origin. Tutufor learned what the Una wanted, and how he was of great interest to them. It was a great shock to see himself the way the Una saw him. He had forgotten so much of himself to survive these last two years that he had forgotten almost everything that made him, well, him. The Una wanted to create a sentient creature who could wield their powers but new emotions. They weren't cruel entities deriving pleasure from others' suffering. They didn't do this to satisfy some perverse curiosity. They were organic machines wanting to learn to feel. Tutufor saw something else, a crystal of some sort they used to send the telepathic commands. These crystals were present on every Una colony ship, and it was there that he would strike. Tutufor spent the following years sharpening his powers to perfect blade. He would destroy these crystals and shatter the Una's minds. To do so, he had to increase his training to beyond anything he had done before. He would not simply forget anything that could have hindered his control. He would remove it from his mind, his past, his aspirations, his family, and even his name. All that was left was the number he had been given by the Una, 224, and the goal of destroying them. It was now the day of reckoning. Tutufor had gone to the very limits of the powers the Una had cursed him with. He could now see them in their astral forms and how the crystals linked them all. He could even enter this realm himself, but not for long for fear of being found. 
When the order to leave his room and enter the battle arena was given, the Una received a single whispered response, heard by every Una in the galaxy. No. Two to four then poured every ounce of power into the crystal of the Una, who had given him the order to little effect. So he went beyond what he knew was his limits. Blood began to flow from every orifice. Pain, like nothing he had ever felt, assailed every cell in his body. And the crystal, the crystal, barely shook. He had failed. He had given his all, and he'd failed still. For a moment, his memory drifted back to a girl that he had liked. Her smile as she passed revived feelings of guilt and shame he didn't know he still had. The astral eyes of Eriuna snapped back to look at him, and the crystal showed a tiny, insignificant crack. Tutufal saw this and redoubled his efforts, but he couldn't remember anything else. When thinking of his parents, he couldn't see them as anything other than blurred outlines. He felt so little by this point. Then, he remembered he was not alone in this building. He reached into the minds of the other's test subjects. He channeled anything he could into the crystal. A song from an old game that always resonated with a young man. A picture of a family a young girl recreated in her mind every night before going to bed. A pet, long dead, who would protect its owner from the dreaded vacuum cleaner. He let loose these memories, and more importantly, the emotions they represented to the owner. By this point, his body had begun to give. His flesh and bones were burning from the effort and power he wielded. His own astral ship being the only thing keeping him alive. One of the Uda, a warden of the arena, snapped out of his emotional attack long enough to warn Tutu Four that if he continued, he would cease to exist. Tutu Four looked into another mind, that of a young boy. The boy looked up to his older brother. He was his hero. He collected these tiny little figurines he liked to paint. He had told him the law behind all of them and gave him his favorite unit before going to war. Titufor smiled at this memory, and to answer the Una Warden, he quoted from that boy's mind, But those we cherish, we die in glory! Titufor's astral form leapt into the crystal, and for a fraction of a second, the Una knew love, hate, obsession, indifference, love, revulsion, happiness, sadness, and a myriad of other emotions. And then, when the crystal shattered, they knew no more. After this, a few things changed in the galaxy. Humanity returned to Sol and brought the Slon with them. And, insulting, or worse, attacking a slon in the presence of a human, became a synonym with death. The destruction of the Una brought a new era of exploration for the races. They no longer lived in fear of encountering them. And on the place where once stood a white Una building, there was a large humanoid hologram, with a small gold clock that reads, 224, The Lamenter. End of story. Story number two, Ring of Soul, written by British Tea Company. Larango. The Emperor nodded in acknowledgement as his viewscreen displayed the short, grey alien on his viewscreen. It did not look pleased to see him. The Emperor Sol, the alien said as his massive eyes slitted at the sight of the human Emperor. Not anymore, Emperor Sephriel smirked slightly. I am Emperor of the Galaxy now. 
Perhaps the information you keep on the rest of the galaxy is not nearly as good as you imagined it to be. Nonetheless, those working in Imperial Intelligence still remain second to none. The alien's eyes blazed for a moment as it stared back at the Emperor. How did you find us? Your workmanship was shoddy. It clearly didn't last. The Emperor chuckled as he leaned back at his throne. The draconic visage upon the chestplate leered in through the viewscreen with a fierce grin. However, my engineers and archaeologists were still able to work with what was left of your technology. A lesser race would have mistaken your ruins for simple space dust. We discovered telltale clues of your origins, and of course, your own world. To be situated at a system so close to the galactic core must make you feel like you're all at the center of the universe, doesn't it? Tread carefully, human, while people are conquered the stars while you were still gathering wheat in a field. That time has long passed, alien, said Empress Sephiroth, drawing dismissively. If there was one thing, however, I find still redeeming upon your dead civilization, it is your world, your sanctuary. It tired many of the brightest minds I had, but regardless, we still found it. Your home world. The color drained from the gray alien's face, as he looked quite pale, even for his species standards. His side of this view screen soon displayed a massive ring world that surrounded the entire star. It was, unmistakably, the very world he was sitting on at this moment. I am impressed, the Emperor nodded approvingly. It takes quite the civilization to create such a fascinating structure, to garner the resources for a construction the size of a planetary orbit. I am fascinated. Then by all means, you should remain fascinated. This ring is a testament to our people's power. Your people's former power. It's shameful that this is the last ring world still existing in the galaxy, all the others having long failed and crumbled from your people's fall. This ring. The testament of power and prestige is not worthy to be held in the hands of your race. You would not dare take it from us. Why wouldn't I? I am the Emperor of the Galaxy. You are keepers of decaying and dying artifact, ruined by your people's fall. As this galaxy is mine, your ring world will be mine too. And I do not intend to keep such an item hidden away at the galactic core. After I'm done wiping you out, I do not care if it takes me a hundred million ships to drag that baggage back to our capital. Your ring will do nicely in the Sol system, where I will restore it to the glory of a race who is worthy of having such a jewel. End of story. 1932 Story number one. An Honorary Troll, written by Ben Babylon, they wept. Breaker paused for a moment, taking in the sight of the mage in front of him. The robes, the beard, the aloof expression, they were all typical. The staff was not. You cast with that? He asked, half impressed. The mage swung the thing off his shoulders, overhand, and planted its blade into the dirt. It was the first truly threatening staff Breaker had ever seen. The blade on its end was almost as long as the haft itself, counterbalanced at the end by a polished lump of amber larger than a goose's egg. The damn thing looked more like a pole arm than a casting aid. 
Breaker waited a few moments to see if the human was going to respond to his question. He didn't. Part of him, the proud part, was happy to finally be taken seriously. The smart part of him suspected that he was going to miss the advantage of being underestimated. Breaker unslung his massive warhammer from his shoulders, its half-slowed fall still weighty enough to be felt in through the boots of the Major's thick work boots, loud enough to be felt in both of their chests. Then he blitzed the length of the bridge. The Major's eyes wide, his wizened hands began to twitch out a ward. Breaker knew there wasn't time, the gap stood short. He was already beginning to overhead swing of the hammer. Half falling, the full weight of the speed, strength, and weight poured into one crashing blow. He knew the secret to hitting a mage was giving them everything you had, as hard as possible, as fast as possible, as close as possible. The more time they had to think and react, the more dangerous they'd become, and the more time he needed to chase and smash, the more tired he'd get. Thank the gods this was going to work. Extended fights were... The wizard grinned. A spell went off. Not a ward, simpler. A small jet of flame shot out of the amber orb, rotating the blade to vertical in a fraction of a second. The wizard half relaxed as he planted the staff in the gravel and looked forward to the huntsman versus the charging boar. Breaker knew he couldn't slow down. He couldn't dodge. The one mercy that he could see was the tip was aimed at his chest, not his gut. He'd rather choke on blood than rot from the inside. He closed his eyes before impact, not wanting to see the blade sink into him. It didn't. He heard a crunch of gravel, a giveaway, and the crunch of his nose as the mage threw a haymaker into the sidestep. Star moved helpfully to the side. He was half glad for the blow because it helped him get his center of balance back under him. He knew he wasn't going to be able to get the blow in with the hammer again. They needed too much time to build the momentum, but he still turned to face the wizard. Every instinct, insisting that he couldn't take his eyes off the little man for more than a moment. He turned out to be right. If he turned his head half as fast, he wouldn't have had the time to dodge the cudgel end of the staff, swung like a bat at the back of his skull. If he hadn't been outmaneuvered at every step of this fight, he'd have assumed that swinging from that direction his bad eye was on was just luck. The fact that he knew it was intentional did nothing to assuage his nerves. With no space to use his hammer, he used the next best weapon in his arsenal. His body. His leg snapped outward, his massive height letting him connect the blow easily with the old man's chest. He felt something give and watched with some small satisfaction as the human went bouncing down the bridge's center path. Well, he didn't need an invitation. He couldn't move quite as fast as he'd launched the mage away, but it was a close thing. The pause gave him time to get the momentum he needed to swing the hammer. He felt like an ox behind a cart, the weight behind the building into something unblockable, undodgeable, un... unbelievable. The little man ended his tumble on all fours, splayed like a damn frog. The hammer was already bearing down on him, too late in the swing for Breaker to change course. Even as he watched the final twitch that signaled the ward was cast, the hammer slammed into the Major's hunched back harmlessly, the force of the blow charging the ward like a magical battery. 
The maniacal grin on the little man had worn ever since the first blitz widened half a step further. Silver molars on full display. And then... He flew. Rather than directing the force into some sort of attack, rather than buying himself time and space, the two classical friends of all natures, the silly bastard, directed all of his stored-up energy downwards, the blast launching him up, bringing him from all falls to chin height, to eye level in a fraction of a second. He probably wouldn't have headed up another six or seven feet if he hadn't grabbed a hold of the breaker's left horn. His upward momentum swung him full circle around it, his journey ending abruptly as he drove the armored soles of the boot of his decidedly unwizardly boots into the back of Breaker's skull. If he'd been an ogre, or a nightkin, or even a giant, he would have been out cold. But Breaker was a full-blooded troll, and the horns on his head weren't just for ornamentation. If he charged a brick wall, there was a coin flip's chance that he'd be the winner. The boots never stood a chance. The wizard managed to get two more vicious, if slightly panicked kicks in before Breaker's fist managed to catch up. They grabbed him by the collar of his coarse green robe and yanked him forward over his shoulder. The old man looked slightly sheepish, dangling from his inhumanly large hand of his opponent. Breaker cut to the chase. You could have killed me on that first charge. The mage nodded. There wasn't a whole lot else he could do. His robes were caught so tightly then the trolls grasped that they acted like a straitjacket. Why didn't you? The wizard went for earnestness. He'd been told it was his saving grace. You do not deserve death. This is your bridge. I just could not afford the toll. The robe tightened further as the trolls fist clenched. Do you wish that you killed me when you had the chance? The wizard snorted. Murder you? For the price of a goat? No. If I could make a wish, I'd wish I could swim. The troll let go of one fist and the thumb trading back to his mouth. A large, sharp tooth clamped down on the meaty pad of his digit, drawing a thick bead of green blood. The wizard's confused blossom into disgust as the echo was smeared on his forehead to his chin. The fuck? He cursed when interrupted by the troll. I have decided to make you kin, and my first gift to you, great kin, is to grant... Your wish. The second fist, the one still gripping the front side of the wizard's robes, flung itself forward. The wizard barely had a moment to curse before plummeting in the water below. Several seconds later, Breaker waited. The wizard arose, spluttering from the depths. He turned, tumbling from the cold, the rage, and the sheer disbelief of what he was experiencing. It's four feet deep! Breaker nodded. Yes. It was almost heartwarming the way the wizard laughed as he began wading his way towards the far shore. Breaker's hands gingerly roamed over the goose eggs growing from the back of his head, larger than his own horns had been when he passed the trials of manhood. If nobody gave you headaches like kin, that little man was trolled enough for a small army. End of story. Story number two. Gatling got it right. We just made it bigger. Written by Random 3X. Hugh and Hugo, we must prepare the station's defenses. The Rangja swarm already in system. Malcolm, a large reptilian alien, begged as he looked at the human head of security for the Earthling space station. Don't worry, Marker. We have this, Hugo replied. 
opening a defense chest and taking out a piece of machinery with multiple pipes connected to a strange mechanism. Is that a weapon of some kind? Backer asked hopefully. Indeed it is, dear Backer. This is known as a minigun, Hugo explained as he tested the rotation of the pipes. It is an updated version of a very old weapon. How old, human Hugo? Mako asked. The original gun was made in the 1860s, so several centuries already. You are using such primitive weapons? Please, this design was already successful when it was first invented all those centuries ago. We just stuck an electric engine onto the mechanism to make it go even faster. Hugo reassured and hooked the minigun onto a mount and linked the metallic belt. But the swarm are endless. You need to rate a fire that is so absurd just to meet them head on as you are, Mako protested. Please, Mako, this little baby can manage about 50 rounds per second. 50? Yes. The old gun was nowhere near as fast, but we rammed it up to even faster, he replied, giving the gun an affectionate pat. Still human, Hugo. Even with the whole station security forces using such weapons, it may not be enough. Please, we did more than make it go faster, Marco, Hugo replied, trying to reassure his friend. Go to that panel and look up the file labeled It Go Burr. Maka followed the suggestion and went up to the wall-mounted terminal and searched for the file. Opening the document, he was shocked to see the same design, but far larger. Firing rounds that were significantly larger than the ones he could see being fed into the minigun. These may be able to take on the hive knight, Maka muttered, looking at the design. The station has several hundred of those babies as point defense weapons. These miniguns are just for the scraps that make it through, Hugo explained, giving a playful wink. But human Mako, this gun has an even higher rate of fire. Mako pointed out as the holographic display of the weapon appeared, displaying its statistics. Used to get put on fighter jets with the intent of strafing tanks and uh, rendering them to scrap, Hugo explained. These may still not be enough, human Hugo. The swarm's numbers may still survive even these. Hugo, in response, only began to chuckle. Marka, tell me the name of the station. Well, uh, it is known as uh, Gatling Station, Marka replied, unsure of Hugo's point. Look at the design of the overall station. Marka complied and brought up the schematic of the entire station, and only then did he understand. He had always wondered why the station needed such powerful engines when its mass was not anywhere near high enough to warrant them. But to counter the recoil of the gun the size of the station itself, the Gatling gun with the station built around it, well, then you'd need a pretty good engines just to overcome the constant recoil. We have enough full rounds for the station to fire into the swarm for two minutes. Then the point defenses will take over for what little survives, Finally, the few barely living scraps we get, our minis, still think that we can't hold out against the swarm. To be honest, human Hugo, I now kind of pity the creatures as they don't know the storm that they are approaching. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.